You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. There are many people who do not want to hear the truth because it will shake up the false hope they have that they're going into heaven when indeed they are not. Christ is our King. Scripture is our law. Scripture and the laws of our country now collide head on. Now, just to make it clear, we don't bow down to Caesar. So what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at the Areopagus? Watch him. Now, not only has Paul not compromised in order to get here, but once he's here, he says, your worldview is wrong, your philosophy is wrong, it's not just wrong, it's an affront to God, you ought to know better, you're in sin. But the good news is, God has extended to you an opportunity to repent. Welcome to Semper Reformanda Radio. We are part of the Bible-thumping wingnut network of podcasts. My name is Owen Pond. I am taking over the intro duties today. Uh, I have been with Semper Reformanda for a couple episodes now. It's been really great getting to know uh, my two co-hosts, Tim Shaughnessy and Carlos Montijo. I host another podcast you can find called Ask a Millennial Christian. Uh, Tim and Carlos, you want to say a little bit about yourselves before we get into the meat of today's discussion? No, uh, we're just, uh, we're glad to be here. We're uh, grateful uh, to have you on board and uh, looking forward to a great discussion. Yeah, likewise. Uh, look forward to this. It's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting show. A lot of variety. All right. Well, I guess we're just going to dive into it then. Today's episode is going to be about a discussion recently that, Carlos, you did on the subject of New Covenant theology. Now, I I know there's been a lot of talk recently about NCT, and I'm glad that we finally had the opportunity to interact with someone in a, in a direct live setting. I think that's really helpful to uh, advancing the discussion. And this yeah. particular discussion was set up by Andrew Rappaport of Striving for, Eternity's, uh, Striving for Eternity Ministries. So you may have seen that live, and if not, we're actually going to play it for you as part of our podcast. But first today, I'd actually like to talk with Carlos a little bit about it to sort of get your ideas, impressions, post-debate maybe help us understand if there were any issues that may have needed clarification or that you would have liked to go a little more in-depth on but weren't able to because of the time constraints. So, Carlos, first, how did you feel about this discussion? Um, yeah, I thought actually thought it went really well. I really enjoyed it. Um, I was very grateful. I'm very grateful for uh, brothers uh, Andrew and Lewis for uh, willing to do it and wanting to get this set up. Um, I thought that the, I thought the discussion was really good. I mean, we covered a lot of interesting topics and points, and um, yeah, and I I was wanting to clarify a few things because um, I got a little tripped up on on the Sabbath and on the incest issue. Um, just kind of went blank on a few things, and uh, but I've, I've kind of studied up a little bit some more and um, look forward to addressing some of those things that I I didn't really do uh, too much of a. Uh, a good job on or things that I kind of left out or didn't really clarify very well. 
but you know what, man? Uh, I, this is Tim here talking. Um, sorry, I'm, I just jumped in. I, I really want to just take the opportunity to commend you for being willing to go on. Uh, it was, I, I want to let everybody know that Andrew Rappaport approached uh, me asking if, if we could do it. Um, and I would have loved to have jumped on there with you. Um, I just, I, I did not have the time to prepare. And then uh, I also was working that night. And so uh, I just, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But you really took this on very short notice. Uh, you knew that there were some, there were going to be some difficult issues that we're still wrestling with. Uh, that we're still working through trying to figure out uh, and you know just going through this discussion with uh, the guys from the porch um, and and basically all the NCT guys it's really forced us to sharpen our own understanding of our own view and uh, so I know that you were working through that and you knew that some of these issues were gonna come up uh, you took some time to prepare for it but um, it was very short notice. I think that Lewis has been in this arena a lot longer than you, but um, you know I commend you for uh, the humble attitude that you had, and I commend you for the willingness to to go on and have the discussion. Yeah, and I was just gonna say real quick, it, it was a pleasure to do it. I would love to do it again. I mean, I had a good time. I think it was very, um, I think it was edifying. I think it was helpful for people to see us dialoguing more directly, kind of like what Owen said. So. I look forward to doing it. To I'm open to doing it again. All right, great. I thought it was really good too. I I enjoyed watching it. Um, Carlos, I'll let you sort of frame it in the way that you want to and, and go down your thoughts. But to to start with, what would you say was the main uh, point of disagreement in the discussion between covenant theology and new covenant theology? And then you can just go from there, and and, and we'll talk about your observations or thoughts. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I guess it was probably pretty obvious that one of the issue, one of the main issues, was the Sabbath, and um, I guess the Sabbath and and the pro the incest uh, issue was also, I guess, one of the two big points that um, were pretty that we got into a pretty good discussion on. Unfortunately, I wasn't really that well prepared for either of those two things, and I didn't really know. I mean, I had no idea what we were going to talk about, so I wasn't really prepared to address that. Um, I'm a little bit more prepared now. I kind of have a, a, a better idea um, how to address those things. But, yeah, so, you know, and it was really interesting because um, I appreciated what, what uh, Lewis was saying and how there was, like, we actually did have quite a bit in common, and that did surprise me somewhat because of the fact that, um, you know, I, I wasn't expecting um to be that that much agreement because I did ask him before the show you know did he did he for the most part agree with uh the the conversations from the Porsche guys and he said well yeah because I'm classical he said he was classical new covenant so um he said for as far as he understands it it's pretty much it's very similar or uh, they're in the same camp and or things like that so um uh yeah so I mean I got a little I didn't really know what to expect. I, I didn't even know that he had verses like that he wanted to go to specific verses. He didn't mention that. I, I didn't know he had a blog. So I kind of I probably should have pried a little bit more to kind of just prepare uh, a little bit. But I still thought, it, you know, I, I still had a really good time. I thought it went really well um, that I think. So I'll, I guess I'll start with those the, the those two issues. One of the problems that I 
sort of the missing key that I kind of just went blank on was the fact that um, in Reformed Baptist theology, you don't just have a concept of a tripartite law uh, with respect to the Mosaic law. You also have the concept of positive law. And I completely left that out of the, left that out of the, of the discussion. So um, positive law is basically uh, um, sort of goes hand in hand with the moral law, whereas the moral law is eternally binding. You know, it's basically binding it all for all men at all times. Positive law is not. Uh, positive law is basically law that is uh, it's con it's contextual. It's um, it's you know only for a specific circumstance or people or so on and so forth, and so uh, this this is what really kind of uh, failing to mention this really affected my my ability to answer the, you know the incest question and the Sabbath question, and so um, so and one of the things that Lewis had said that if and I wanted to address this too because Lewis had said that if the incest came later meaning that it wasn't part of the moral law, then it would have to be either civil or ceremonial. And that's actually not necessarily true because positive law, again, the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law specifically pertain uh, and primarily pertain to the law of Moses. Uh, but there's other cases of positive law that, don't, that aren't a part of the Mosaic law, such as, you know, God commanding Abraham to kill his son. Uh, that's a perfect example of, of positive law that's not, required for everybody to do it was only for a specific person at a specific time and so um, but that being said because um, the fact that uh, and I have a quote here from Sam Renahan that he I think he does a pretty good job of explaining it um, so and I listened to a sermon from him and he says that the Sabbath is moral and and basically what I was explaining uh, that that it's a moral the moral aspect of the Sabbath is to rest and trust to, to rest and trust in God. And so, but th there's the Reformed Baptist understanding of that is that there is a positive aspect of the Sabbath in which the positive aspect is that the sixth, the seventh day was established. Um, I think from, I, I don't know if there's variation here between like from creation all the way to, um, you know, the, 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 the nation of Israel. Um, but it's at the very least established uh, within the nation of Israel as the seventh day to worship and to worship God and to have this to basically to have the Sabbath on. And they but then they would claim that they would that the, the positive law was modified or abrogated by the new commandment in the New Testament to uh, to to have the Sabbath on Sunday, uh, you know, for various different reasons. I haven't studied that too much, but um, that's that's as far as I understand it. Um, how it goes, and I have a helpful quote. No, actually, I think this quote is from Sam Waldron, um, uh, from his article on uh, theonomy. Uh, he says, "Positive law includes any laws added to the natural law, uh, such as the law of creation or more. I mean, I'm sorry, that is the law of creation or moral law, due to the entrance of sin and is based on God's will and is man's possession via special revelation. That is Scripture. Moral law is based on creation in Dei and on God's unchanging nature and man's possession via general revelation in Scripture due to the entrance of sin. Positive law is dynamic throughout redemptive history, moral law static. Wells appears to, and this is Tom Wells, and he's talking about Tom Wells and Fred Zaspel. He's reviewing their book. I'm, actually, I got the wrong. This is a critique of their book, not, not the Theonomy article. Uh, Wells appears to infuse Zaspel's understanding of positive law into his discussion of moral law. This has detrimental implications for the identity of the law written on the heart 
that is natural law, the basis of the covenant of works, the, perpetu the, the perpetuity of moral law, the Sabbath, the active obedience of Christ, and the imputation of righteousness. As you can see, all of those issues we basically touched on in the discussion. And so clearly showing the implications that were very much related. And so needless to say that the Sabbath is a very complicated issue. It's not, it's not, it's not that simple. And so it's, in fact, it's so, it's, it's, it's so substantial in the Bible that you even have, um, whereas in some sense you could say that we would have much more overlap between New Covenant theology and Reformed Baptist theology, but because of the Sabbath, um, you can see how, how it has some pretty substantial um, uh, modifications on, on pretty weighty, heads of doctrine and so um, that was uh, that was something that I wanted to clarify that uh, unfortunately I did not I, I basically forgot to bring up in the in the discussion and so well why don't we let's uh, so uh, since the the listeners may not have actually heard this debate yet uh, let's try to put this in context a little more so you talked about Sabbath and incest what why do these two things matter and, and when I asked what was the main point of contention, why did you go to Sabbath and incest? Why was that important in the debate, and why is that important in the debate between CT and NCT? Yeah, good point. So this has, you know, as I just kind of said, this has bearing on several different heads of doctrine. And so the, the issue with the incest, for example, is the fact that if incest, you know, New Covenant Theology guys will criticize us, and basically... And it's partly my fault because I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, that was one of the lessons I learned that if I didn't know for sure, I should probably just refrain from saying anything because, you know, people will take that and run with it. And so, um, yeah, but Carlos, issue, when, Carlos, when you don't know ahead. for sure, you go to the confessions and not scripture, right? Right. <laughs> right. That, that's how you resolve right. things. That's yeah, exactly. Um, so I forgot to, I forgot to unmute myself, but I was cracking up right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, so and we're we're gonna get to that. Uh, so you'll have plenty of chances to laugh later. Um, so the 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 issue with incest was basically the fact that they you know I, I I said I messed up because I said that it was a special case of moral law, but Lewis and I appreciate Lewis uh, he was he was pretty well uh, versed for the most part in Reformed Baptist theology, and so he was confronting me with the definition of moral law and saying that it's binding for all men at all times. And so in me saying it was a special case of moral law because I was trying to account for the fact that incest was not always uh, a sin, uh, you know, like in, when Abraham married his half-sister or when Noah, when they had to repopulate the earth between them and, and, you know, Adam and Eve's kids and so on and so forth. And so basically incest did not become sin until uh, the law of Moses in Leviticus 18, I think, or 19. And... Um, so that was one issue where um, I, I basically just didn't do a good job of um, explaining correctly. And then the other issue, of course, is the Sabbath. And here you can see where significant points are modified in, in the, or are established because of the understanding of the Sabbath. And one of that exam the examples is that their understanding of the law of conscience or absolute law is the two great commandments. And so they would say that the Sabbath is not, I guess, morally, I guess it's not binding the way that uh, the Reformed Baptist or the Reformed tradition understands it as being binding as both a moral and as a positive uh, law. And so, um, he, Andrew, uh, I'm sorry, Lewis said that he had a similar understanding to what I currently hold to, and that the Sabbath is um, uh, binding in the sense that uh, 
you know you have to trust in God and you for your salvation and for your providential for, for his for his providence um, but the but but as you can see the issue here is because the reason they want to take it to the two commandments and not the ten even though Christ said that there is summary you know the two are a summary of the ten um, are that um, the the ten explicitly mentions the Sabbath and it's and it and it mentions the positive aspect of the Sabbath as well so that's why the Sabbath is in part so it, it has so many different layers that need to be carefully examined at each part and so and I kind of touched in the, on the debate a little bit how there's the aspect of resting, there's the aspect of worshiping, there's the aspect there's the aspect of setting apart a day, or if there should be a specific day, and then and so on and so forth. And so um, those those really showed um, kind of where where our assumptions lie, and uh, from both sides. And so from from I did a little bit of research, and from from what I researched um, basically is that what I understand now is that uh, incest is a case of uh, positive civil it's a it's positive law civil law that's still morally binding today and so by civil law, I mean that because it was introduced in the law of Moses and it was a uh, you know it's, it's talking about domestic issues or, or civil matters with family and things like that um, it's it's a uh, it's it's a uh, civil law but um, in the sense that it's not strictly um, it's it, because it's civil law it's not necessarily uh, you know it, I, actually it sh probably should be binding for for countries or nations to do that to, to enforce that law um, and I think a lot of them do I know that not all not all of them do but um, it, it's it's definitely morally binding today and so the reason the incest is a sort of a special case in that sense is because um, a lot of times these civil laws don't apply directly in the New Testament the way incest does. So, for example, you know the the not not a don't uh, strain out. What is it? What? How does that saying go in the in Timothy? Not to uh, strain out a, a gnat and swallow a camel. Is that what you're saying? No, no, not that one. The one about the oxen. The oh, don't the, don't uh, muzzle the don't ox. muzzle. Yeah, yeah, don't muzzle the ox. And basically saying, you know, that uh, you should pay pastors well. And or like the example that Lewis brought up with respect to the the uh, the uh, Passover being applied to church discipline and purging out the leaven. This is a case in which incest basically applies directly, uh, morally, at least in the sense that you know it's 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 a sin for for us to uh, marry, uh, you know, uh, as the confession says by by degree by too close a degree of consanguin consanguinity or affinity. And so, meaning by if it's too close of a relationship, familial relationship, or if it's too close of a of a blood relationship, which is expressed and which is explained further in Leviticus, and so um, that's that's basically and you know the, the system you know so th this isn't really a problem in our in the Reformed Baptist view. It's not it's not really a problem in our system. I just didn't really do a good job of explaining it, and um, I I see that, and from what I understood in that New Covenant theology, they basically claim that. Um, the their their incest or their, the way they import incest into the New Testament is that they um, they 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 sort of put it under the the, the category of uh, sexual immorality, um, and so to me I think it's kind of inconsistent. I mean, in the sense that you know they you like we've heard from the porch guys you know say that Moses wasn't fired but retired. So if he's retired, then why are you still using him? And so then they say, well, you, we use him for wisdom and instruction. It's like well, wisdom and instruction is not the same thing as a law, you know. It, it, there, that's what I was trying to point out in the discussion as well. Like, 
I mean, it, 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 I kind of saw an inconsistency there, um, but uh, it was a uh, it, it it brought out some interesting uh, the ways in which we understand scripture. Uh, yeah, well, that's not. Camps. I mean, that's not some inconsistency. This is a major, significant, uh, systemic inconsistency. And so, because they haven't heard it yet, they may be like, "Why are you talking about incest so much?" Well, because it's an important part of the debate, and it's a, it's a key point where we can illustrate why we think that NCT can't stand up on its own. And so, the argument goes like this: from the covenant theology side, right, which says that there is. God has an absolute moral law that is binding upon all men in all times. And NCT would say, well, yeah, that exists, and it's the law of conscience, and it's very ill-defined, but it's there. But whatever was in the Mosaic Covenant is abolished completely, and instead we live as believers under the New Covenant law, which or the law of Christ, which is the law of Christ, his commands, and then those of his apostles. So... Yeah. There's nothing in the New Testament about incest. Well, there there is, but it's a it's a, a, a mother-in-law and and a son, right? You have Herod uh, and his sister's wife, no, his his brother's wife, and then you have in Corinthians, you have the man has his father's wife. Okay, so there's nothing in there about brother and sister. So this is this is the case example. What does NCT do with a brother and sister getting married? And there's a very famous NCT proponent, Lear, who says that if you were in a country where it was legal for a brother to marry his sister, that that would be a holy marriage before God's eyes, that there's nothing in the New Testament against that marriage. And, and that's the accusation. So then let's look at it. When you put that out for NCTers, of course they get upset at that because it's, it's, it's I mean, culturally right now, it's, it's not, you don't want to be out there as upholding incest, right? Uh, and so what is right. their response against it? Because they cannot point to anything in the New Testament. You cannot point to anything from Jesus or from his apostles uh, that would say you can't marry your sister. So instead what they do is they go to the general equity of the Old Covenant law, which is exactly what they say they're opposed to. They go back to the Old Testament. They say, well, no, no, no. We know what sexual immorality. So sexual immorality is, is the prohibition in the New Testament. Okay, well, what does sexual immorality mean? Well, we need to go back to the Old Covenant law to see what sexual immorality means. I'm sorry, but that is a complete violation of everything that you say you stand for. And that's the basis of the Reformed understanding of general equity. The general equity of the judicial law carries over into the New Testament, right? We say there's continuity here. We can go back and look to that. But at the point where they say that they're going to go back to the Old Testament to get a definition for something that's in the New Testament, guess what, guys? You just ripped page 9 out of your old mortgage contract and stapled it to the back of your new mortgage contract. That's the issue. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah. good. Hey, uh, let, me, let me jump in here because uh, since we're not recording on Zencaster, I keep uh, unmuting my mic, and I need to. I need to say something. I think um, for for them to. I, I just want to point this out. For them to come to the conclusion that they're coming to, they would have to adopt uh, the uh, reformed hermeneutic of arriving at this by good and necessary consequence. Uh, so I just I, I want to point that out. So if you're gonna if you're gonna say that the reformers uh, made up the uh, the hermeneutic of uh, making inferences by good and necessary consequence. That's exactly what you're going to have to do here. And I think that this plays out even more, going back to what Owen said, uh, this plays out even more for the issue of bestiality. Yeah, and, you know, th this is part of where it gets a little bit, um, it, to try to be fair, 
Uh, well, first, let me read the, the Second London Baptist Confession that Owen was quoting or referring to. And in chapter 19, verse uh, section 4, it says, To them he also he gave, to them being Israel, he gave sundry or various judicial laws or civil laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. Um, so the moral applications of any law still applies, which is exactly uh, what I was also referring to about, you know, the, the issue with the Passover that, that Lewis was talking about. It's not the actual Passover. It's just a, um, applying the Passover illustration to purging out the somebody from the church. And so, and, and I'll, you know, they will probably say that like Christ defined marriage, something like Christ defined marriage as man and a woman. So by definition, you can, that excludes bestiality and, uh, you know, but, you know, not necessarily incest, but, um, and, you know, I, I get their, I get their argument. It's, it's kind of similar to what we do. It's just that my problem is that some of, when they explain themselves in certain ways, it's, it seems to contradict what they're saying. And so like they'll say Moses was retired. And so it sounds like, okay, well, you know, like the, the, the analogies, especially they tend to break down very quickly and easily. So, so they're going to um, call Moses up back up from retirement to come out and sit down and make a, a decision. Yeah. I mean, they, they would say, I guess like it has to be, it would be through the hands of Christ or, or however they say. And so that's, and I think a, a good issue, actually, what might be a pretty interesting issue uh, would be like tattoos, for instance. Because with tattoos, um, there's really no clear, um, th there isn't an explicit command against tattoos in the New Testament um, for things like that. And so, and, you know, tattoos were explicitly forbidden in the Old Testament because they were pagan practices. I mean, they were, heathen nations did tattoos, especially uh, in large part to worship dead ancestors and to worship false gods and for even tied to demonic possession. And so, um, you know, in the New Testament, that obviously, you know, stuff like that still applies today. And, you know, I don't know, maybe they would say, like, they would probably try to do the same thing, that you, they would put it under some kind of New Testament general command, you know, to, like, well, I don't even know. Actually, I don't even know. I don't even know what they would think about tattoos, to be honest. But Well, I think, um, isn't there a new command that the Reformed shall get tattoos? I think it's actually a requirement now. <laughs> no? Uh-oh. Can of worms. Um, no, not, not, I don't know. The porch cast, they don't, they don't strike me as the, uh, as the, uh, the, the beer beards and tattoos group. I think that's the bearded brains. Yeah. I think that's the one that we need to look to for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but, and you know, I pretty much, um, yeah, I thought I, I, uh, I think that was a pretty good, uh, not, nonetheless, I, th I still think that was a good discussion. I did, you know, I kind of was explaining, I was trying to explain that, but without actually mentioning a positive law, and so I kind of tripped up the definitions and the categories. But, but um, in any case, I was kind of wanting to address something. I'm going to, you know, switch tone a little bit now to a little bit more somber tone, and uh, uh, talk about some of the comments that um, the porch guys made about the discussion, specifically uh, Brother Christopher Fails. And um, so I don't know. I, I guess I'm assuming you guys heard the the uh, what he so his comments were. And uh, I don't know, but I guess to me, he sort of sounded like he had a condescending flair going on there, uh, very similar to what his response was in their, you know, three-hour response to our to our show. So what did you guys think about that? Uh, it, it, it existed. It, it was there. They talked about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I would yeah. say that uh, the, the way that he portrayed you coming into the debate was uh, um, was not accurate. Uh, saying that you know you you 
were coming in kind of confident and I, I forgot how he said it, but uh, it just did yeah, not. I think that's what see, Yeah, uh, like you, you, you knew what you were doing, and then you know you kind of. Uh, um, I'm not really sure how how he phrased it, but I don't think I don't think that was very gracious. Uh, I mean, I I don't think he he obviously didn't talk to you. He he didn't know what your mindset was coming into the debate. Um, so I I don't think that it was right for him to make those comments uh, and, and you know uh, heads up I mean I, I really hope that Christopher can sit down and listen to this whole whole thing out before he starts blasting us on Facebook um, you know I, I'm sure I, I'm wondering yeah. if, if by now there's already been a meme made about uh, bestiality or incest I, I mean I don't even know but uh, <laughs> you know the thing is, um, we are going to uh, heads up to the porch, and uh, you know whoever else out is out there who who cares. But we are going to address their three-hour megathon episode. Uh, there there were some things that were said in that that I think that were not uh, accurate. That were um, that that we're just going to have to address, and we're going to do that hopefully next week. Uh, if we don't get to it next week, then the week after that, but um, I just I I think that the tone I, to me he seemed a little bit condescending, you know, um, th how he was saying that you know we keep telling these guys you know they don't understand our view and it's like, well, just about every time that you know they talked about covenant theology, you know they were misrepresenting it, and so we can say the same thing about them, and uh, you know. I think that it really says a lot about you that you're willing to go on and have the discussion because that's what we've been we've been after this entire time. So we'll get more into that. But what did you think about it, Carlos? Well, actually, Carlos, is it not true that you have actually read nothing about New Covenant theology? That that's true, right? No, that's not true. Uh, so, but I thought your only basis was a couple of snippets from a podcast that you were critiquing. That's not true. No, no. no so I mean, you, but yeah, you I mean, haven't actually put any thought into New Covenant theology, right? I mean, you're just swinging blind. Yeah, right. I mean, right. That's really like this is why I was so, I was I was really disappointed with the I guess the attitude that Chris brought, um, but very pretty much carrying on the same attitude from their response, and um, I was I was really disappointed uh, because again, like th this was you know, and and I want to commend. Pa uh, Pastor Paul Kaiser, for you know he he um, he 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 you know publicly posted on Facebook he thought we both did a good job he messaged you know he even PM'd me and he said he thought I did great and this that um, he he's even like he's he's even sought to reconcile with me he even apologized publicly for you know that uh, I guess scarecrow comment that he or song that he played um, on so I really I appreciate what Paul is trying to do he's trying to see. You know, he's trying to follow up with me and, and, you know, try to seek reconciliation. And to me, and I'm trying to keep the door open for that reason. You know, I'm trying to keep the door open. I know people would like to see more more direct interaction uh, between us. So I'm trying very hard to keep the door open. But with comments like this coming from Chris, it just kind of makes me want to slam it again. Uh, kind of like they slammed it on us in, in their response. And so, and I, I want to be careful not to speak for everybody on the porch because I don't know where they're all at right now. It seems like Paul 
is starting to open up a little bit more based on his um, uh, some of the things he said. Uh, more, I guess, more charitable, more generous things that he said. Um, but um, yeah, so that that's why I was so disappointed. Um, and one of the things he said that I wanted to take a look at uh, was he said, unfortunately, we weren't able to discuss these things with them, that is us, uh, because of the fact of a relational issue going on between our podcasts and theirs, evidently. And so, uh, well, what was the issue? I mean, why didn't they want to talk? We did, you know. I, I showed up. I showed up. Um, I was Carlos, ready to go. Were you willing to talk about the issue with one of them on Andrew's show? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's the thing that, like, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to like throw this in their face because I, I'm tr again. I'm trying to leave the door open. It's just very difficult maneuvering through this kind of situation. Uh, hey, uh, because... let, let me uh, let me jump in here. You also got to. Um, I mean, you can't really speak for every one of us as well because I'm having a hard time leaving the door open. Um, I'm not really sure if I want to continue on with a, with a dialogue, even if it's direct dialogue with them at this point, just because of, of what I've seen. And uh, Owen, you brought up the, uh, the issue, and we're going to get into this more at length, but you brought up the issue, uh, Owen, um, about, you know, Carlos, uh, you, you didn't just take snippets from their, from their podcast. And um, you know that's one of that's been one of the criticisms is that we've only we've only uh, looked at NCT through them, and that's not that's not true at all. We we said from the very beginning, from the very first episode, I think like the very first ten minutes that we were going to treat them as a primary source for NCT, and the reason why was because we were hoping to interact with them. And so now they're they're twisting that and saying you know that we're only that we're not studying it for ourselves and that we're only uh, and and the thing is we've seen a lot of inconsistencies between uh, proponents of NCT and even Chris was uh, saying you know you can't paint us all with a broad brush uh, and then Paul was saying you know there's a lot of people out there talking about NCT but people aren't actually listening to what we're actually saying and so we played that clip I said okay we're gonna we're gonna tackle what you guys are saying because we were hoping to interact with them directly, and so we wanted to tackle what they said. And then, you know, it's like, uh, well, I, I have a lot more to go into about how, how this has gone down and how this has been portrayed. But at this yeah, point, we'll have to, yeah, yeah. At we'll, this we'll point, we'll have to deal um, with that in the next episode in, in a little bit more detail. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Was there so was there anything else that you want to respond to then? In, in their response to the program? Yeah, well, the th oh, are you asking me or Tim? Yeah, Carlos. Well, either, either one of you. Well, I was just going to say, and, and I know that's why I use personal pronouns, because I know you guys are frustrated. I've, I'm frustrated. I've gotten frustrated. I've been frustrated with, with the way things have turned out with, with uh, the porch. Um, and, but, but I am encouraged by, Paul's, by Brother Paul's responses. And just to clarify, I wasn't actually offended by that you know song he played about the brainless straw man or whatever i figured it was some kind of joke i just didn't really understand what he meant by it but you know now i get the fact yeah it was okay it was a scarecrow scarecrow fallacy okay uh, fine but um the 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 um here's another thing that kind of sort of like kind of took me back a little bit because paul said the reason he didn't want to do it because they they reached out to i guess tim and and Andrew reached out to you and t to Tim and uh, Paul, I guess, 
And he said he didn't want to do it on the show, on their show, that because he's not good at debating and he wanted a different perspective. Uh, but that's not what they said on their response. And first of all, first of all, Andrew said it was uh, going to be just a discussion. It wasn't going to be a debate. He was explicit about that. He made that absolutely clear from from the get go. And so, and we've repeatedly reached out to them that we're willing to dialogue, we're willing to debate, we're willing to discuss, we're willing to. I mean, we're pretty open about that. We're we're just wanting to do a discussion because it's back and forth stuff. It keeps getting lost in translation. It keeps getting mangled and twisted. Um, you know, and it's like it, it's not very helpful. It's just making things worse. And so, and actually, I actually would agree with them that a debate wouldn't probably wouldn't be best. Um, I think a discussion like the one that I had with uh, Lewis would probably be the most beneficial for for everybody uh, because th that's the whole point of having a discussion is to clarify our views and it's to you know help point out criticisms or or point have a discussion a good back and forth. In a more productive way, and so, um, in their response, you know, they also well because in if you guys remember, I'm sure you guys remember in their response, the reason they said they didn't they didn't want to talk to us at all anymore uh, was and was because they slammed the door on us, and so they said they were done and they had put their foot down basically. So, um, but again, I, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to be careful about this. I know, you know, I'm I'm speaking for myself. I'm trying to keep the door open. Um, it's it's a little difficult trying to you know wade through this situation, but um, you know again I, I appreciate that Paul apologized to me, um, and and you know and it's actually kind of funny I wanted to point this out to to brother Chris as well because the, he actually said that the reason that he didn't want to debate us on their response was because we're not fully Reformed Baptist, and it was really ironic because uh, I guess a little bit later on he. He uh, quoted an, or he cited an, he he's posted us or tagged us in an article by David Gay. Well, I guess that was um, that that David Gay wrote as a result of what we had said about his quote, uh, that quote about the systems. You know, the fact that it, it will never become a well-defined system or a system set in stone, or, or you know that quote that he that he said. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, let me uh, let me correct you. That that wasn't written uh, in response to what we said. Um, I that uh, that article was written about, I guess, uh, just criticisms in general about what David Gay had written in there, but that wasn't directed at us. And uh, yeah, so go ahead and continue. Okay, yeah, I was curious about that because it seems like if that was the case and they completely told you know David Gay the wrong thing because we didn't we never said that we weren't willing to debate them. Uh, or to de or to have a discussion with them, they're the ones who told us that, and so it, I just thought it was kind of funny because, in his conclusion, he said, "How about it, my reformed friends? Can we not, with Bible in hand, discuss the assertions of New Covenant theology, assertions which you so much dislike, subjecting them to the light of Scripture, Scripture, mind you, not any confession, and doing so on the basis of passages and not just proof texts? I am sure I speak for many New Covenant theologians when I when I say we are willing. Are you so?" Many, he did say many, not all, certainly not all, because this would obviously not apply to the porch cast. And actually, this this almost sounds like he's in some ways more directly talking to, to Brother Chris, because he said he didn't want to engage us because we're not fully Reformed Baptists, or we don't fully subscribe to the confession. And so I just thought that was really ironic. But um, um, And then, you know, there, there he also claimed one of the other things he said, he claimed that I was misunderstanding because we supposedly thought that they only use the New Testament. 
And uh, but again, we already kind of touched on this that that's not true. Um, I, what I was saying and what I just said before that I think they're inconsistent with the, with the way that they try to incorporate the Old Testament with the New Testament. We're not saying that they don't use the Old Testament. That was the initial misrepresent or misunderstanding that I had prior to listening to the, to those guys and to studying more about covenant the, uh, New Covenant theology. Um, so yeah, I mean, and and not to mention that they've they've contradicted themselves in the past. They've given us, I mean, on their show they give a very much a mixed bag of of contradictory impressions and and, and inconsistencies that we're going to point out in more detail on the following on the following uh, episode. But um, but that's why you know, again, well let's like, let's uh, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> let's move on from the meta discussion, the discussion about the discussion, because it's very clear. We have said from the beginning we're willing to talk to them. That offer stood, and it still stands. Carlos, you're willing to talk to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Is that is that not true? Yeah, absolutely. I'll even I'll even even if it's by myself, I'll talk to all of them. I don't care. I mean, I don't mind. Yeah, and I, I like to sleep, that. so I don't have the same offer. But Carlos's offer stands. So this is it's it's very <laughs> yeah, clear what that's about, Tim. And I'm 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 really torn because I can't just let Carlos go into battle by himself. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm really torn. I'm really frustrated, but uh. You know, it's like uh, if if Carlos is gonna go on, and and if I have the opportunity, I'll probably jump on. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm back and forth. Okay. Okay, I just want to yeah. talk about one thing. You, you you say there's inconsistencies, and there's no question there's inconsistencies. I mean, even listen to two podcasts, and they'll contradict themselves. But this is just like when you talk to theonomists. Every theonomist that you talk to, you're gonna say something at some point. They're gonna come back with that's a misrepresentation. That's a straw man. I don't believe that. Like, well, these other theonomists do. Well, I don't. Talk to me. Oh, okay. Well, you have the same problem when you're talking with NCT because they're going to say things and you'll be like, well, but I didn't think NCT believed that. Well, I do. Oh, okay, but that's not what those other NCT... Well, you just need to read more. You need to study more. Well, I'm sorry, but Lewis himself pointed out some of them believed that there was a covenant with Adam. That's kind of a big deal and it's kind of a big distinction. But but my point, that consistency is inherent within the system. Not only are there inconsistencies within the adherence of NCT, but the system itself is inconsistent. And, and I want to point out one thing that, that you guys talked about a little bit, and that's the doctrine of imputation. Now, we know that many of the original proponents of NCT actually denied the imputation. Now, of course, that's not a that's not really an acceptable thing to deny in evangelicalism, and so most that I've interacted with now would accept the imputation of Christ. But you pointed out that the imputation is that Christ fulfilled the demands of the Mosaic Covenant, and that's that's his righteousness that he then imputes to us. So when you asked Lewis, he said, yeah, that's fine, but Gentiles were never under the Mosaic Covenant, so why would Christ's righteousness of the Mosaic Covenant be imputed to us, what's the link there? And his link was was just that. Well, Christ bought the house; he can give it to anyone he wants. But that doesn't that that falls apart when you look down to the specifics. Like, okay, it's in general he, he can do whatever he wants, except for the fact that that was part of the Mosaic covenant. The 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 and he even said there's no covenant with Gentiles, and yet they're under a law. So Gentiles are under the law of conscience, which is ambiguous. It's I actually call it nebulonomianism. It's not antinomianism. There is a law. It's just really unclear what that law is. So Gentiles are under the law of conscience, um, but in the law of conscience, Lewis said, there's no provision for redemption. So 
they're condemned by the law of conscience, but there's nothing within the law of conscience that can get them out of that condemnation. So they have to go to the Mosaic Covenant to get redemption out of the law of consciousness. Well, that doesn't seem to, to make much sense. And I thought that was a very important part of the discussion. I think it could have taken up more time. Unfortunately, incest and Sabbath took the, the bulk of the time. Did you have any thoughts on that? Do you, do you think it's as crucial and inconsistent as I do? Yeah, actually, um, I, I was just about to, to lead into that. And um, one of the things that, that um, and I wanted to point this out as well, because, again, I, I just want to show, you know, one of the things that Chris had also said about the, 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 the show, or what I had said or whatever, uh, was that the parts of the law that we supposedly claim are done or set aside or no longer applicable, they claim that, he, he, he clarified that they say that everything is still belongs to Christ. It's all Christ. And so um, that, again, that's like basically a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation of our position because we're not saying that we can't take spiritual applications or implications of those laws. We, what we are saying or what the confessions say is that the Mosaic laws are abrogated as they were originally practiced in the original context except the moral law. And so, um, you know, that's what the confession state in chapter 19 verses uh, sections 3 and 4. And so another thing that, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like we talked about this, that he thought I was very, I guess he thought he thought I was less prepared than Lewis was. And, yeah, to some extent, I guess I would agree. But, well, mainly just pertaining to the Sabbath and the uh, the incest. Um, but, and and that he, I guess he thought I was, he thought I was going to come into it and, you know, all confident and stuff and, uh, you know, show him up, I guess. I don't know. But um, so um, one of the things that Chris mentioned was that we or he in his own words, he said, you know, that they've been telling we've been telling him me, referring to me uh, for months now that you guys are not understanding and not grasping. So by good and necessary consequence there, um, you guys referring to, to, to us, to all of us, to Semper Reformanda Radio. And so um, he was referring to all of us. I don't know why he, you know, uh, thought he was, I don't, this is why, and I'm, this is partly why I'm so frustrated with them because I don't want to have to do this and I don't want to have to go back and forth with them on things like this. Um, it shouldn't be that hard to simply point something out to them and show, hey, you're being pretty uncharitable here. Like, this is not true. Uh, you know, so, and, and like I said, I mean, we, you can clearly see from our episodes that we, you can argue pretty, pretty um, safely that we understand New Covenant theology better than they do Covenant theology. Um, unfortunately, that's not saying much because they've misrepresented it almost every single time. Um, but in any case, um, you know, it, it's like, it's like, um, it's, it's one of those things where um, you, 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 you kind of, have the impression that that's the impression that they give like kind of like that movie from uh, what's that movie called the Knight's Tale where the bad guy goes up to Ulrich or to you know uh, Heath Ledger and he tells him you know see me when you're worthy come back and see me when you're worthy it's like you know come on like what is that what kind of attitude is that I mean it's just that's just like not even why don't you take a look in the mirror yourself Chris I mean even in his article um, Basically, his article could be addressed with one fell swoop because it was based on a misunderstanding, on like uh, on just a misunderstanding. And I addressed it on the show as well on the discussion, um, because he said that uh, 
that the tripartite division of the law and that we divide the law into three separate parts and this, that, and the other. It's like, no, that's not true. We affirm that the law is a unit. So, I mean, everything he said on the article on the article was basically, and on the response was basically null and void because we do believe the law as a whole. It's just that we distinguish those three parts of the law and also in particular because of the fact that it's uh, the moral law predates it and uh, comes after or follows the, the, the Mosaic Covenant. And he even affirmed that those distinctions in there as well. So, I mean, to some extent um, in his article, but, but anyway, yeah, I mean, so this is why I don't, they, they, he makes, he gives people the impression that we're on such a much lower plane than they are. And we're just, you know, we're not ready yet. We're not worthy yet. You need a lot, you know, come back and see us in, in a few months or years or whatever. And so, um, and then this is one thing that I also wanted to touch on because he claimed that I was holding up a straw man against Lewis until I realized that it wasn't what I what he actually believed when I said, oh, oh that's interesting. I didn't know that you believed that. And this, this is like, like a complete misrepresentation of what actually happened. Like rather than just give me the benefit of the doubt, he pretty much assumes that I was basically just overconfident and ignorant or I had a misunderstanding of my... And so I had no idea what Lewis do. And so prior to the discussion, this is the context. Prior to the discussion, I asked Lewis, do you for the most part agree with the porch guys? And he said... Um, he, he basically told me, yeah, there's four different streams of New Covenant theology from what I've heard from the porch guys. They seem like classic New Covenant theology, which is where I would put myself as well. So I thought, okay, I'm going to basically address them like I'm going to address the porch guys. And much to my surprise, he didn't really have that much in common with them after all. And uh, it, he actually had much, a lot more in common with us than I was initially thought, uh, which was, it was, it was uh, a pleasant surprise in a way, I guess, but um, that that was why I was so surprised, and so, and uh, he he uh, and I like like I said I didn't know where the discussion was going to lead to, or that he already had texts prepared that he wanted to address, and I wasn't prepared to address those texts, but I am now. Um, and I didn't so know, you so, didn't you weren't surprised because you had a miss uh, a straw man of his argumentation. You thought he agreed with the porch, and so you addressed yes. him as if he was in agreement with them, but you come to find out he actually disagrees with them on those points, and that's why you were surprised, that he disagreed with the porch. Exactly. So, um, let, me, uh, yeah. let, me, let me jump in here, because uh, that once again highlights exactly why in our episodes we were trying to uh, we, we were tackling what the guys from the porch were saying uh, because we thought initially that we were going to interact with them based off of the things that they said, and, and we'll get more into that uh, when we address it further. But this just highlights the well, it highlights two things, just uh, the inconsistency with, within NCT, and then it highlights... Uh, exactly why what we were after and why we were trying to address the the porch crew and so w when they when they criticize us and say you know oh you weren't really um critiquing nct you were critiquing conversations from the porch well that's not true we were critiquing uh new covenant theology through conversations from the porch because we thought we were going to have a direct interaction with them based off of what they had led us to believe in their own episodes and so carlos real quick uh you, you. Uh, this may have already been covered, so forgive me if it has been. But uh, one of the areas that Lewis uh, disagreed with them was, uh, w was it, it? I might be wrong here, but was it? Uh, did it pertain to Christ's active obedience? Yeah, I was just going to talk about that. So, okay. 
um, this is where I was surprised that he had more in common with us. And one of those, one of the points that um, he agreed with us was the uh, he, that he affirmed he affirmed the imputed act of obedience of of Christ's righteousness. Uh, and uh, he well, his view is a little bit more quirky because he believes that the entire most the entire satisfaction of the Mosaic law is applied um, on our as righteousness to us and we we got into that discussion into some detail um, and whereas the reformed understanding is that it no it was only the moral law that was actively imputed that of the active obedience of Christ's moral law that was imputed to us um, as righteousness and so and this is this is why I was surprised because Chris him brother Chris himself told us that he denied that uh, when Tim and I first started to talk to him and Paul also basically, um, from what I understand, he didn't hold to it either. And but he said that he was being challenged by a, a, a Joe Seta case when when you know on the first episode that he joined the podcast. I forgot which one it was. I think it was 14. Um, but so they didn't agree with that. Uh, they don't agree on that issue. And so that's again why I was kind of surprised. And the other thing that they also did appear to not agree on was that um, Lewis actually agreed with with our view that you can uh, convict sinners of break or or accuse sinners of breaking one of the Ten Commandments any one of the Ten Commandments in evangelism I, I'm sure he would qualify the Sabbath but he said he said so himself that he agrees that you, he doesn't have a problem with using the Ten Commandments to evangelize and to and to bind sinners with um, and he and he even said that many New Covenant the, uh, theology guys disagree uh, he said most actually too, I think, and so and that that um, from the impression that you get from the porch guys, that also applies to them. Uh, so you know that's well, one let of me, those. Let me uh, let me uh, jump in there because uh, I know that they're gonna say, uh, well, I don't know what they're gonna say, but um, I have a, a suspicion that they're gonna say that no, we we don't have a problem if you use it. Um, I, I think that they're going to qualify their position or. Modify some of the things that they said prior to uh, hearing this. I think uh, they're going to modify their position and say that you know we, yeah, we don't we don't we don't have a problem if you use it. We just think that there's a more accurate way, or I, I don't know. I, I I think that I if I remember correctly, I think that Paul said um, he doesn't he doesn't care if you use it or it, it doesn't it's not a problem if you if you want to use it by all means use it. So, I, I don't know if we can really attribute that to them, or I, yes, I would need to come back. And that's why okay. that's why we're gonna address it in more detail in the next episode. We have timestamps to even prove it. So, because they are giving, a, they're basically giving a mixed bag of contradictory impressions because they don't even agree with them themselves um, from the from what they were saying on the on the on their episode. So, we're gonna de we'll deal with that in the next episode with in more detail. Um, and one of the things that I also appreciated about uh, Lewis was that. He understands Reformed Baptist theology uh, be better than the porch does, and and the, the porch guys do. And even though he did see appear to had a, he kind of had a basic understand misunderstanding of the covenant of works when he said that uh, it only applied to Adam and God and not necessarily didn't have anything to do with us. Um, but when I clarified it, he seemed to agree with the federal headship, even though he didn't agree with the covenant of works. And so. Um, but yeah, th this is the this was the actual scenario. This was the situation came into. I, I wasn't, I wasn't comp. I mean, I 
I had no idea what I was going to get into. I, I just kind of thought like, hey, I was really looking forward to it. I had been wanting to do something like this. And I was just, I was just excited about the opportunity. So, um, and, and so one of the other things was that, oh, so, and, and I did want to mention this a little bit, just to give Lewis a little bit of feedback on one of his articles uh, that you actually commented on, Tim, improving New Covenant theology with only one Bible verse, is that, um, so Lewis, I think, told you, he said, you, you, Tim, claim that the Decalogue continues on, but Galatians says that it refers to uh, covenant, not law. Uh, cannot be added or taken away from. Uh, covenant theology does both of these. It adds, it both adds to the Decalogue and it takes from it. At what point does that commandment require attendance at a public service? What if I wanted to stay home and, and worship God by myself all day? Is that acceptable? Not according to the covenant theology or the covenant theologian who claims that the fourth commandment requires public attendance at a worship service. Thus, co the covenant theologian has added even to the Decalogue when Galatians 3.15 says that a covenant cannot be changed once it's, once it's been ratified. According to scripture, those commandments were ratified by blood. So if it has been ratified, how is it that the covenant theologian both adds to the commandment by adding the requirements and takes away from the commandment by changing the day? So this is actually not true about covenant theology. It's kind of a, another sort of basic misunderstanding of covenant theology because we don't modify or change the old covenant per se. Um, the, all of this is under the new covenant, not under the old covenant. And so that's just kind of a, like a basic thing I wanted to point out. Um, he so also said an, something. That is, yeah, excellent, that is an excellent point. It, it, it's almost as if they talk about us like we think that we live under the old covenant. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's definitely not the case. It's, this isn't the new covenant. Um, and that's so, actually yeah, uh, that's actually funny that you brought that up because I I, I had left a comment on his blog and then um, I'd, uh, I I thought I like like uh, put you know that. Filled something out so that I would get an email notification if there was another response, and I actually saw his response like two days ago, and it was funny because uh, he responded to me pretty promptly, so I never responded back to him. But now I'm I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah, and actually I wanted to read his conclusion as well. Uh, he says, "I throw my lot in with Paul. I believe that the only way to alter one dot of the Mosaic Covenant is if someone comes along and fulfills it completely." Uh, that is, uh, parentheses, pay off, pays off the mortgage. Otherwise, all agreements are still in effect and unchangeable. But isn't this exactly what Jesus said? Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, excuse me, until all is fulfilled. God's covenants are unchangeable until it's fulfilled, just like man-made covenants. And if a man-made covenant can't be altered or changed after it's been ratified, then how much more the case with, with when God with a God-made covenant. Yeah, and I guess he was arguing from that, uh, from the lesser to the greater, but I, I kind of, I don't know if I understood him correctly because he said God's covenants are unchangeable until it's fulfilled, um, just like man-made covenants. And this is why, like, I, this really didn't make sense to me because the covenant doesn't change. It's just fulfilled. And then God gives us a new covenant. And so I'm not sure, maybe he was just like, the, the wording was a little bit con uh, confusing there, but... Um, yeah, like we, we, this is not under the old covenant. We're not under the old covenant and we're not changing the old covenant either. We're under the new covenant and those are the stipulations uh, that are qualified under the new covenant. And so the, one of the things that you got into uh, that you started getting into as well, Owen, is that the, this was a really interesting discussion. I think this was a, one of the really interesting points of the discussion. Uh, the question of whether the Mosaic covenant offers eternal life. And, um, 
and I this is where I thought Lewis's view kind of showed a big gap, a really big gap, and just not really properly being able to account for uh, what happened with everything before Moses, especially Adam. And it, I don't think it properly addresses the fact that the parallels that the New Testament draws between Christ, specifically Adam and Christ, in Christ and Adam, the first Adam, the last Adam, those parallels are there for a reason. And that's why um, the reform position is that the problem was that Adam had broken the covenant. And he even affirms that there's a covenant. And, uh, and so it's just not the, the covenant of works where there was a test and so on and so forth. But, and this is really interesting because um, I guess he was saying that Moses, the Mosaic covenant, promised eternal life. And that in the New Testament uh, was fulfilled. Uh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. He thought, or he believes that the Mosaic Covenant uh, offers eternal life, uh, but I don't. I that's why I disagreed with him because um, it, the the New Testament did that by fulfilling the covenant, and Christ in the New Testament did that by fulfilling the covenant of works, and you can see this explicitly by the situations that parallel what happened in the Garden, such as the temptation between Christ and Satan, and so all of that is showing you that where Adam failed miserably, Christ and uh, Christ uh, fulfilled it perfectly, and that is the, the act of obedience that is applied on our behalf. And so this is really interesting because um, uh, there's actually some variation within Reformed Baptists about this view. Some people actually do take the view that, similar to what um, Owen, I mean, I'm sorry, Lewis was saying, uh, that it, that uh, the Mosaic Covenant did offer eternal life. I personally don't. I'm not fully decided on that yet, but I, I, I don't think so because the promises were just to have life, you know, choose life that you choose life that you and your descendants may live. You know, it's not I don't think it's really necessarily talking about eternal life, whereas in the eternal in the covenant of works, um, you do see that clearly, clearly there, because Adam obviously did not have eternal life prior to the fall. If he had eternal life, he would have had eternal life to this day. And so. It was because of, and, and explicitly after the, the covenant, he broke the covenant, he had to kick, God said that he's gonna, he was going to kick him out because he could still eat of the, of the tree of, of eternal life and live forever. And so you clearly see that more, uh, you clearly see that there in the covenant of works. And this is another point where, uh, to, to, to point out to the new covenant theology guys, because if there wasn't a temporary testing period, then that implies that Adam would have been perpetually tested for all eternity through that serpent being in the garden. Like, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Obviously, there had to be a point where he, God would test Adam so that the, 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 the stipulations would be met or broken. And that's exactly what God tested Adam was so that he would break the stipulations and so that he could, you know, his redemptive purposes and his glorification of Christ on the cross, so on and so forth, could be accomplished. And so... Um, yeah, but I thought that was very interesting. Um, and, um, the, the, and the other interesting point that, or I, I guess the other point of weakness that I saw in his view was that uh, he didn't believe that every single law is tied to a covenant, and, and uh, specifically the universal law or the, the, law, the, the law of conscience or however they say. And this is really interesting to me because it's how is it that every single law is tied to a covenant except for that one? It's like, and they believe, or at least he believes, that there was a covenant in the garden. You know, it's like, it just seems, it's a really logical next step. I mean, it's, it's just a logical thing to believe. Like, obviously, that law was tied to that covenant. 
Um, and you well, can see it's, that. It's super easy. The way that they can do that is because it's not actually tied to anything in the text. And so they can just fill it with whatever meaning they want. It sort of becomes an easy get out of jail free card, ironically. I mean, so um, they get to make it up. Well, I think I think they claim that it's not in the text, and therefore they're not willing to go that far. Um, but the problem is that you again, this is where you see sort of a difference in methodology. It, once you start harmonizing the scriptures together from the Old and the New Testaments, the conclusion is there, and it's inescapable. It's even explicitly there. I mean, you you clearly see Adam breaking the two great commandments, and so because the tree in the Reformed Baptist understanding, the tree was a sacramental. It was a sacramental. Uh, uh, it was sacramental in the sense that it was a, it was demonstrating the fact that they broke the, the the moral law. They broke the two commandments because they he did they they failed to love God and they failed to love each other as you know their neighbor or whatever each other properly because he, you know he blamed Eve and Eve you know so on. You, you know the story. You know how the story goes. And so, um, but anyway, yeah, I thought that was a really those are some interesting uh, points that were brought up. And um, I wanted to. I think we can probably. Uh, let me uh, let, let me just uh, say this. Uh, Adam blamed Eve after uh, the sin was already committed, uh, but in allowing Eve to even speak to that serpent and allowing Eve to uh, basically take the fruit that he knew would would uh, you know God told him not to eat of it because he would die. He wasn't loving Eve. He wasn't loving his neighbor. Uh, so that's how he broke the the uh, the second greatest commandment because he wasn't loving her when he allowed her to eat of that fruit to see if, well, is she going to die or is she, is she not going to die? But, uh, yeah, he blamed her after the uh, the sin was already committed. Yeah, but but when, when God inquired, that was his answer. And so, I mean, you they can't say that they – that. That that did. How can they say that they didn't break those commandments? Obviously, they did. I mean, it was clearly broken. Um, those two commandments were clearly broken, and so um, and it was in the same context of the covenant itself being broken. So I mean, it's just it, it's really inescapable um, there. But um, yeah. So I uh, one of the things that and this is another thing that Chris had mentioned on his uh, comments to me, referring to me. Um, he said that he said it was very telling or very revealing that I was up against, when I was when I was up against a scriptural wall um, regarding the Sabbath. Instead of seeing what the Bible says, uh, you know, that I said I, I I defaulted to saying, well, I don't know what the official Reformed Baptist answer is. And so um, this is a this was this is what I thought was very telling because. Again, it's a it's just a very uncharitable misrepresentation. That's not true. Um, I, that's not the only thing I said. I clearly said that I needed to study more and that I wanted to find out what the Reformed Baptist theology or understanding of that is, because I don't have a problem admitting my convictions. I admit that I have convictions, and the Reformed Baptist theology guides my understanding of the Scriptures. That doesn't mean that I put them over the Scriptures, and that doesn't mean that I disregard the Scriptures. I I use the Reformed Baptist understanding because I see that it is consistent with the Scriptures because I test them with the scriptures. And so, um, so yeah, that was, uh, and uh, he also said. Um, yeah, well, on that point, that actually, it, that really simplifies when, you know, when they make this whole, oh, I just believe the Bible. Yeah, okay, well, then I just believe the Bible too. And, 
uh, all right, and we have different opinions on what the Bible says, and that's where we get into disagreement. It's it's ridiculously disingenuous to say, well, you're imposing a system, and I just believe the Bible. What they're missing, and, and they know this, but it's the what they're saying that contradicts it. It's an interplay. It's a constant back and forth. Yes, Scripture is our foundation. There is no other uh, direct revelation than Scripture. That is the basis for understanding everything. However, just like knowledge, right? What's the interplay between its epistemology, the, 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 the theory of knowledge? How do we know things if we don't get input, right? So sensory input, for example. But then how do we interpret the sensory input if we don't have knowledge? But how do we have knowledge if we don't know things? And how do we know things without sensory input? It's just like the scripture. We read the scripture, but we're coming to it with certain uh, understandings or attempts at understanding. And so you can read it, and then you might read something about it that says, well, this is how it fits together. You go back to scripture, you say, oh, that is how it fits together, or no, that isn't how it fits together. You read it more, you attempt to fit it together yourself. Someone says something to you, you take that, you compare it to the scripture. It's a constant interplay. It's not as simple uh, as it, it is simple, but it's not as simplistic as they would make it out to be, because they yeah, do the exactly. same thing. They take their NCT assumptions and put that into the scripture. Now they say that exactly. it fits and matches, but it's still what they do. Exactly, and that's exactly what I was gonna what I was gonna lead into because uh, Chris said, uh, and this is ex this was actually very revealing of him. And uh, and what we've pointed out from the very beginning, from the very beginning when we started to when we started criticizing New Covenant theology, it basically shows that our criticisms have been accurate about this very point. Uh, because this is a fundamental point of disagreement. It's an assumption. It's a difference of assumption. And so he he, he basically, one, his admonition or his, his, his uh, encouragement to me was, don't worry about what the official Reformed Baptist answers. What does the Bible say? And so obviously this was extremely telling because... Um, and and it exposed the the underlying assumptions that that are at play, and this is just basically a no creed but Christ moment that he had. You know, it's, it was it, it's a it's a it's a tendency that New Covenant theology tends to have with um, biblicism. You know, only sticking to what's in the text, what's in the Bible, and or or at least you know being very uh, shady or not being very uh, uneasy about systems and so on and so forth. It, just everything that we've been pointing out from the beginning. Um, and so here's, here's the thing. Reformed Baptist theology, like the confessions, like, Reformed, uh, like systematic theology, guides our theology because that's exactly what the Bible says to do. It doesn't say, contrary to what Chris is telling me, to ignore everything that everyone else has said and you know just make it about you and your Bible. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that, they, you know, repeat, you know, how else will, can we be of one mind? when Paul in the New Testament repeatedly commands us to be of one mind. I'm basically just reviewing the criticisms that we've already addressed with them. To be of one mind, we have to do theology together. It is not, understanding the Bible is not a solo enterprise in the church. It's part of what you do as a church. And so um, it, to rightly divide the word of truth, you know, to heed to pastors and to teachers that God has gifted throughout church history, all of these things the, the Bible commands us to do. So that's actually an unbiblical thing to do, to say, well, who cares what anybody says? Who cares what the Reformed Baptist theology, you know, say? Uh, what does the Bible say? You know, it, it's like, and so, and, and going even further, he actually said, 
he he said the same thing in his in his response in their three and a half hour response uh, because he he said something similar saying that you know we don't appeal we're not appealing to a system here we're not trying to answer from you know a, a system or from new covenant theology we're just trying to go straight to the Bible and seeing what it says and and this, this is what I want to encourage Chris with um, stop reading David Gay stop reading new covenant theology authors stop doing an NCT podcast and promoting new covenant theology stop filtering the Bible through new covenant theology lenses and stop trying to define NCT stop being so disingenuous and just look at what the Bible says Okay, and this is what you were pointing out as well, and this is exactly what we've been pointing <laughs> out from the very beginning. It's impossible. Um, like, it's just ridiculous to say things like this. Now, go ahead, Tim. No, I just thought that was funny. That was that was gold. Yeah, and so he, you know, and this is another interesting thing. He said that when I, I was confronted on my error, my error, you know, he said my error about the Sabbath, instead of instead of following the Scripture, I said that I should probably. It's probably a good a reason for me to become even more Sabbatarian, uh, into to go. He well, the way he said it was to go further into my error, and uh, rather than to submit to Scripture. And here we go again. Like, okay, it's one thing if you disagree, but the, this is what's so disingenuous about it because Reformed Baptists are using the Bible to come up with their convictions and to come up with their system. And so, um, what I said was I needed to study more. And and of course he's assuming that his view is correct and that ours is wrong. But again, like this is what this whole disingenuous and David Gate does this repeatedly too. He did this in the article uh, about the nothing, you know, no confession, nothing to debate article, saying that we approach this is what no actually he said that in his very quote that we critic that we critiqued I think where he says that what's so special or or particular about NCT is that it approaches the scriptures unfiltered through any system, right? Any system except New Covenant theology lenses i mean exactly. distinctives i mean it's a this is why like the it's so it's such a fundamental misunderstanding of i hope they see this i mean i hope it i hope that this is becoming more clear or obvious anyway but um that's the point that we're made that we've been making all along and so um and yeah he you know he made the comment of i needed to study more just it had a pretty condescending flair to it um that's that's kind of like okay so do you so do so do all of us well you so know what's what? interesting that on that carlos that talk. You, ahead, your answer was actually i need to study that more <laughs> and then he comes back with well you need to study more but you shouldn't study well, yeah. you should just read the bible of course right of course i mean that's what i'm yeah i mean and this is i wanted to this is probably i think this is going to be a perfect way to conclude this um he said, you know, because he was talking about that scriptural wall that I was up against with, because Lewis confronted me about Nehemiah 13. I want to start off this way with the Sabbath. Is was who who was the Sabbath made for? Is a, is a question. I would want to ask this to New Covenant theology guys. Who was the Sabbath made for? Because if you look at the new what the what Christ Himself said, He said the Sabbath was made for man. He didn't say the Sabbath was made for the nation of Israel only. He said the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. And so I thought that was, you know, I've been studying this a little bit more. I listened to one of the sermons that uh, uh, one of our listeners uh, showed to us, and it was a very good sermon. I'm gonna, we're going to put it up on our show notes so that people can take a look at it. But, um, I mean, I, that, as I look, and, and I wanted to clarify my position where I'm at because I kind of didn't give, I guess I didn't really give a good, uh, I wasn't clear about it. Um, I'm definitely leaning more towards a Sabbatarian view Currently, I don't necessarily hold to the view that it has to be 
that the Sabbath has to be on a Sunday. I do believe that you should set apart a, uh, a day uh, once a week, but I don't think it necessarily has to be on a Sunday. I, I'm still looking into that. And I'm also um, kind of, I'm not so strict right now on the prohibitions as to what you shouldn't do on the Sabbath. I think, um, you know, you should definitely dedicate the day to rest. That is definitely something you should do. You should rest it from your general routine and, and take that moment to rest and to uh, fo try and focus on God, basically. I mean, that that's really what the Sabbath is for. And so um, I, I'm leaning in that direction. I'm just still kind of working through those to those through those areas of the prohibitions and 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 specifically it being a Sunday. And uh, but but yeah. And and here's the thing. Um, when when uh, so going further, the, the because Lewis was basically saying that he in that passage in Nehemiah 13. God didn't, or Nehemiah didn't rebuke the, the foreigners. He didn't rebuke the, the, the Tyrians. He only rebuked the nobles of Judah, or the, or the, the, the Jews, basically. Um, but here's a, what's really interesting. Uh, if you look at this, uh, the fourth commandment in Exodus 28 through 11, it says, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your stranger nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. That is a non-Jew who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So there you can clearly see, and this is why I was pointing that out, that if you wanted to become uh, to live in Israel, you pretty much had to become a Jew. You had to follow the, law of the, uh, the, the laws of Israel, the Mosaic law. And so um, that includes keeping the Sabbath if you're a foreigner, not even if you live there. If you're a foreigner, you have to keep the Sabbath. And so, um, and, and I want to now going to, this is where I want to close it, close it with this, where, by reading the passage. So by reading the passage in Nehemiah 13, it says, um, and this is Nehemiah 13, 19 through 22. So basically Lewis stopped at, at verse uh, 16 or 17, I think, where it says that he rebuked, the no that Nehemiah rebuked only the nobles of Judah. And but if you, if you keep all you have to do is keep reading. If you keep reading, it says so. It was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I Nehemiah commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates that so that no burdens would be brought in uh, in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. So you can clearly say, see, he not only did he kick them out, he kicked them out. So that itself was a rebuke. But he even threatened to lay hands on them on the foreigners, on the Tyrians, who were selling like fish and stuff to the, to the Jews on, on the Sabbath. And so clearly he was rebuking both Jews and Gentiles there. Um, so his, his point was really inaccurate. He, and, you know, that's why I said I wanted to look at the passage more carefully because it was hard for me to read it while we were talking. And so I thought that was a really interesting uh, thing here that was that was completely left out of this. Um, uh, it's unfortunate that I didn't get to read, you know, read the whole passage. But um, there you can clearly see how uh, how revealing that is, and how 
it basically disproved Lewis's point. But uh, and just once again, and I wanted to conclude with this that I do appreciate Paul's desire, uh, you know, to reconcile, and I even appreciated. Uh, I think it was Joey's comments about uh, what I was saying or about the the discussion, not to judge solely from one debate because somebody may not have somebody may not have said something clearly the like I did, for example, and that, but that just because I said something clearly doesn't mean that you know the position is necessarily wrong. And so I did appreciate him saying that as well. Um, and I wanted to submit that to Chris too. I mean, I'm trying to leave the door open. I hope that I, I'm still looking forward to in the future that we can maybe have something, a discussion like this, like the one I had with Lewis. Uh, so I don't know. What did you guys think? I think you said enough. Um, and I just can't wait for Facebook to blow up. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you, Owen? Wrapping it up. I, I think we're done, and I look forward to the listeners hearing the actual debate instead of just us talking about it right. and hearing their responses. Yeah. This is a discussion. We really look forward to hearing from you. Oh, and uh, you, you, uh, I think you're gonna be, uh, you're gonna have more peace of mind the next uh, couple of days because you, you can't even see what's going on. You, you can't even see conversations from the porch uh, Facebook page anymore, huh? That is correct. I'm not in the group, and it's a closed group. So I have no idea what's going on inside that walled-off compound. Oh, man. Yeah, it, must be, it must be so peaceful for you. It is. That's it the is. Thing. That's the thing, you know, and I'm trying – again, I'm trying to leave the door open. That's why I'm, I haven't left the, that group yet. I've been very tempted to, but, you know, we'll, we'll see We'll see how it goes. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, with that, uh, we are going to – Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and play uh, the first half of the debate with uh, uh, with uh, on uh, of striving for eternity, and uh, we want to give a thank you to Andrew Rappaport. We want to thank uh, Lewis for uh, di uh, discussing this with Carlos, and then next week what we're planning on doing is we're going to play the second half of the discussion. So. Until then, uh, we thank you guys for joining us. Uh, Owen, thanks for doing uh, the intro, and uh, I think uh, next next uh, we're gonna have Carlos do the intro. We're just we're mixing it up. We're just trying to do different things. Uh, you know, it, it's this show's not just about you know it, this isn't my show. It's not Carlos's show. It's it's our show, and uh, we're very grateful that Owen is is still with us. And uh, so I think uh, next time it'll be Carlos. Or Owen, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But anyways, we thank you guys. I hope you all have a blessed week, and uh, we'll check you next time. Well, welcome to the Striving for Eternity. This is another one of our theological discussions. Today's discussion is going to be on the topic of covenant theology and new covenant theology. Why do we do these hangouts? We do these specific theological discussion hangouts for the one purpose, well actually two purposes. The one purpose is so we can better understand what different people believe, different views of different theological systems or beliefs within theology. But a second reason is because we want to try to be an example to those of you who would be watching of how we can disagree theologically with people without the name calling. Well, okay, okay. We can use first names, but other than that, we, we don't want the name calling. We're not gonna you're not gonna hear anyone calling someone a heretic or anything like that tonight. You're gonna see people that can discuss 
where they agree or disagree with one another and not be all you know uh, mean and bitter toward it uh, toward one another. So the guest we're going to have tonight is, and I'm probably going to butcher Carlos's name, but he's going to correct me, I hope. But uh, we have, I'll butcher his his podcast even more. But it's Carlos Montego, if I if I got that right, did I get that right? Montijo or Montijo, uh, think of the Beach Boy song. Yeah. Okay. So you, anyone that knows me knows that Carlos does not know me well. I'm pop culture challenged. Uh, I don't <laughs> know music. I don't know movies. So <laughs> that doesn't help me at all. And Carlos is with a podcast called Super Reformandum, which I probably butchered as well. You want to correct it? Yeah. Semper Reformanda Radio. And that stands for Reformed and Still Reforming, correct? Right. Reformed and Always Reforming. Oh, and always reforming. So, uh, and he is going to take the position of covenant theology. And Lewis Lines—it is pronounced Lines, right? Yes. Okay. See, so and he's with uh, Emmaus Road. It was, it was Emmaus Road Baptist Emmaus Church. Yeah. Emmaus, Emmaus Road. Road Church. Go ahead. Yeah, Emmaus Road Church. Emmaus Road Church. But we are Baptist, but we don't have Baptist in the name. Okay. <laughs> and he's going to take a new covenant theology position. Now, as a joke, this is clearly just a joke, but if, you know, Carlos is reformed and still and ever reforming, he'd reform to be new covenant theology, and then they both would reform to be dispensational as they're going to be in heaven, and we'll all be happy. Um, <laughs> you guys can't see that they are laughing. They got the joke, but... <laughs> That's the spirit that we want to have tonight. We we want to have a good dialogue. And with that, I'm going to ask Carlos if he would just you know give 20, 30 minutes, you know, of, of explain to us what covenant theology is, and uh, and then after that, we're going to have Lewis explain what what new covenant theology is. So go ahead. Sure. Um, might not take that long, but um, I first of all did want to thank you, uh, Andrew, for reaching out to us and for. Uh, encouraging this kind of dialogue, I think it really is important, and I think it really does help, especially um, in situations like these, uh, with respect to you know in-house discussions and debates and whatnot. And uh, I'm also grateful for uh, Brother uh, Lewis for uh, his willingness to engage uh, on this topic, and so I'm grateful for you guys, and I'm looking forward to this. So, uh, just a quick overview of, I guess, what I hold to. Um, I do hold to covenant theology, but uh, since I'm Reformed Baptist, there are it's not exactly the mainline version of covenant theology. Um, and I also do want to preface the fact that since I I do consider myself uh, confessional, um, holding to the uh, Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, um, there are some uh, I don't fully subscribe to it, but it's for the most part I do agree with. I guess you could say 95% of it, um, but um, just to, to uh, give a brief overview, um, in covenant theology and uh, the basic issues with covenant theology is that there's the three covenants that um, I guess NCT by and large rejects, which would be the covenant of works, uh, the covenant of redemption, and the covenant of grace. And so um, by and large, there's there's it's really not that much variation. There is obviously variation 
Um, but since we have standards in the Reformed tradition, like the Westminster Confession and uh, the London Baptist Confession, the standards kind of, I guess, in some ways help to uh, keep it somewhat monolithic, even though there's obviously nuances between uh, individuals and things that are not, uh, that the confessions don't explicitly address. Uh, but by and large, covenant theology uh, is, is there's an overlap between um, Presbyterians and uh, Reformed Baptists. The, some of the main differences would be that since we are not uh, Pado-Baptists, since I'm not a Pado-Baptist, I'm obviously a Baptist, and so um, there's very crucial and important um, differences between how we view, uh, in particular, the covenant of grace. And so I guess I'll start with that. The, the covenant of grace is uh, essentially just the covenant that um, God the Father made with uh, Christ and uh, Christ and and we all who believe in him Christ elect in him uh, um, elected to uh, well basically purchased our salvation for us um, in in the New Testament so in Reformed Baptist theology the New Testament by and large is basically what we what we call the covenant of grace um, and, and one of the things that happened with me that, that got me going in this direction was I remember reading through Calvin's Institutes and uh, when he was explaining the differences between the covenants and how he was saying that that there's really not that big of a difference that it's mainly a difference of administration and not so much of substance that kind of got me thinking a little bit as to how that could be possible because especially in Jeremiah 31 and how uh, the new covenant is substantially different in certain ways from the old and so that kind of uh, didn't sit well with me and so I, rec I realized that Presbyterians they have the view that the covenant of grace um, began basically in the Old Testament and it was just a main, uh, mainly a difference of administration. With, in other words, it wasn't really a difference in substance but in administration. And so as opposed to Reformed Baptist theology, it's much more uh, redemptive historical uh, in the sense that it, it takes into account the fact that there are substantial differences between the Old and the New Covenant and so therefore the Old Covenant, the, the, the Covenant of Grace is definitely hinted at and it is announced and it is typologically um, um, suggested and such as like the, 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 the Abrahamic Covenant and things like that but it's not actually um, realized until the New Covenant with Christ's coming. And so that's the major uh, key difference between the two, the two different uh, types of covenant theology. And um, another one, because of this fact that um, there, is, there, is a, there is a difference between in the Old Covenant where there was a corporate election of Israel as a nation, and therefore it included unbelievers in that covenant who weren't necessarily um, the elect or the remnant, um, in Reformed Baptist theology, the, the New Covenant, uh, the Covenant of Grace, does emphasize the fact that the covenant is composed only of believers and not of necessarily of uh, the believers' children. And so, um, the covenant. And so, if you think about it in terms of marriage, the, you have uh, the Bible describes marriage as a covenant between a man and a woman, and that's basically what covenant theology is with respect to the covenant of grace. There is um, uh, but so obviously the Bible describes us as being the bride of Christ, as being married to Christ, and th that is the church is the body, and, and Christ is the head, and, and so on and so forth. And in order for that to happen, however, there had to be some previous circumstances that Christ had to meet, and so that was that's what we call the covenant of redemption. 
and the covenant of redemption is basically the uh, the eternal the the covenant that the Trinity made with itself from eternity past that in order for that that God was going to bless Christ with a gift and that gift would be the elect but in order for him to have the elect he would first have to purchase the redemption and bear the full wrath of of, of the Father and so that's what we call the covenant of redemption in the sense that there was a an, an eternal from eternity past there was a, an agreement that Christ would um, fulfill the, the Father's will uh, through the incarnation and through his life and fulfilling the law and, and to, in order to redeem us from the curse of the law and so um, that's that's essentially what we call the the covenant of redemption and so um, that they're they're interrelated I know some there's some differences and some people say that there's there's um, they kind of uh, subsume the covenant of grace under the covenant of redemption there is obviously a precursor you, you kinda have to have the covenant of redemption prior to the covenant of grace because of what Christ had to do in order to make us his bride and so um, and now as to the covenant of works uh, the covenant of works was Basically, and there's really not much difference, uh, uh, almost at all, from what I reckon, from what I've seen, between the uh, Presbyterian Covenant theology and Reformed Baptist uh, Covenant theology. That would be um, the basically the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden um, to to uh, not eat of the of the forbidden fruit, and so the, it, it was a test. Uh, essentially, the, it's that it was a test. Uh, uh, t it was testing Adam, and um, to see if he would he would uh, and if he would keep the 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 test or pass the test, then he would have been able to um, stay there and and fellowship with God and have eternal life. Uh, but because made because God made Adam fallible and therefore capable of of falling, which is what fallible means, um, God obviously did that for a reason. There was a test because. Ultimately, um, and then this is a question. I like how Paul Washer puts this. The question really is: Did 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 God um, did what did God cause the fall, or, or it, was there a fall because of the cross, or was there a cross because of the fall? And so your answer to that question will determine a lot in how you view um, uh, God's redemptive plan and God's purposes. And this kind of touches in on the issues of infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism but basically um, the issue is that because God had the end in mind and so therefore he had the, um, the his end in, in mind that he had in mind was to glorify himself and so and he wanted to glorify his son and also to to redeem us the elect and in order for that to happen in order for there to be a cross in other words there had to be a fall and so God predestined the fall through the covenant of works by testing Adam in a, in a state of, of basically uh, in paradise when he didn't need anything um, but that's also showing in order that Christ could be magnified and glorified uh, when he was tested in the desert for 40 days um, in dire in the exact opposite condition and whereas Adam failed miserably Christ um, plat uh, passed perfectly with flying colors and so um, it, it's basically making sense of the Bible as a whole and recognizing that God deals with men uh, and with Himself even uh, in in terms of covenants, and so just a basic def definition of a covenant would be um, it is a commitment with divine sanctions, and a covenant is not always made with God and man. It, it can be made with God and and God and 
or, or with himself within the Trinity. It can make it uh, can also be made among people, like in marriage. Um, even though uh, God is the the divine sanction is obviously the fact that God brings two people together. So therefore, let no one uh, therefore rend them asunder. And so um, that's what we that's basically the covenant of grace. I mean, I'm sorry, the covenant of works. And so there's there's lots of overlap between Presbyterian view of covenant theology. The main, the major difference would be in the covenant of grace and the fact that we consider the covenant of grace, uh, the the New Testament. And so I think that that about sums it up. And so yeah, I think I don't think I left anything major out. Uh, yeah. Good. Thank you. And, uh, and now I'll let uh, Lewis, if you want to explain kind of what what your view is, and then then we'll have some interaction between between us. Okay. Excuse me. So, New Covenant theology is actually very similar to uh, what Carlos described as uh, Reformed Baptist Covenant theology. And and since the the discussion tonight is billed as New Covenant theology and Covenant theology, um, I just want to clarify, and, and I think that. Uh, Carlos would uh, would agree that he that he holds to Reformed Baptist covenant theology, and not the two administrations of one covenant of grace uh, Presbyterian form. And I I would say because of that, uh, both Carlos and I are very close. In New Covenant theology and Reformed Baptist covenant theology are very close. Uh, the the difference between the two primarily is going to be the way that you view the law. How do you look at the law of Moses? How do you look at the Decalogue? Uh, within New Covenant theology, there are those who would affirm that there was a covenant made with Adam in the garden. There are some who would deny. Um, I take the perspective personally that where Scripture is silent, then we, be, we, we should remain silent. Where Scripture speaks, we should speak. Uh, there is uh, one text uh, in Hosea where there's mention of, uh, it's, it's one little verse, mention of how Adam broke the covenant. Uh, I tend to believe that uh, that is referring to Adam and and that there was some form of a covenant in the garden, but beyond that, I can't, I can't speak to that. And and the reason I say that is because what what covenant theology puts forth is the idea that Adam was being tested in the garden, and if he would have lasted without eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if he would have lasted through that probationary period, however long it was, uh, then he would have been allowed to eat from the, the tree of life and secure eternal life uh, and ultimately uh, glorification, if you will, for the human race. Uh, that is where I think Scripture is silent and Scripture doesn't teach those things. It doesn't put those things forth. And so I'm going to remain silent on what exactly that covenant with Adam involved uh, if indeed that, that one verse in Hosea is referring to a covenant with Adam. From my perspective, uh, and, and I think Carlos might agree with this, that, that whatever covenant was entered into in the garden 
uh, whether you want to call it a covenant of works or whatever you wish, covenant of creation, some are calling it, whatever you wish to call it, whatever you wish to believe about it, I think that perhaps we would find some, uh, some agreement in the fact that we both agree that 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 covenant, whatever it was, was only for Adam. And in 2016, uh, has no real bearing or effect on us now. And so the question that New Covenant Theology really wants to answer is what covenant are we in now? And what sorts of uh, stipulations and requirements belong to that covenant that we're in now? And, and that's really, I think, where we're probably going to break uh, with our agreement of, of what it is that uh, the new covenant requires. Now, we agree that, uh, that the, the covenant of grace, as covenant theologians put it, is the new covenant. That, that's what the covenant of grace is. It's the new covenant that Christ uh, is the mediator of, that the, uh, the writer of Hebrews says he's the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. Uh, so we, we agree there. Um, so the, the general outline of New Covenant theology is really based upon trying to answer the question, how do you deal with the Old Testament? And I, and I really think that... Uh, Almost all of the covenant views, even dispensationalism, covenant theology, new covenant theology, um, Baptist and Presbyterian forms of covenant theology, they're all trying to answer the question, how do we deal with the Old Testament, the law of Moses, what we see there? Obviously, we don't, we don't take all of Moses and, and, and bring it over. Um, we eat bacon. I eat bacon. I love bacon. Uh, and you know, praise God that He's He's given us the freedom to do that. Um, so there's a lot of of Moses that we ignore, and and this is usually a, a critique that you'll hear from an atheist or a skeptic, who will who will say, yeah, 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 you quote Leviticus when it comes to something like homosexuality, but but what about not wearing a, a fabric made out of two different types of material? What about uh, you know, not uh, eating from a tree until it's more than, what is it, three, four years old, whatever the, the limit was. And, and so they bring up those sorts of things. And, and I think each covenant view is really designed to answer the question, what does pertain and how does it pertain to us in the new covenant? in the church, to Christians in 2016 and so forth. And so New Covenant Theology is going to answer the question this way. The covenant that was entered into with Moses at Mount Sinai was entered into with the people of Israel. And the commandments that were given to them were given only to them. And it did not pertain to any other nation, any other people. They were the chosen people of God, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when you get to the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, from 31 on, where 
Jeremiah promises that God would make a new covenant with his people, not like the covenant that he made with uh, the people as he took them out of the land, the covenant that they broke, but he would make a new covenant with them. New covenant theology sees that that old covenant with Moses is abolished, completely holy, that take every law that is in there, it is it has been fulfilled, it has been abolished, disannulled, it's gone. And what Christ has put in its place is a new covenant. And the new covenant comes with new stipulations. In fact, that's the very definition of covenant. A covenant is an agreement that, that imparts stipulations on both parties or on one particular party within that covenant, that, that someone is requ required to do something or not do something. And so since we have a new covenant, we can be assured that there is a new standard, a new requirement, that, that there's new stipulations that are in place that were not in place uh, in the old covenant with, with Moses. And so we're going to see the new covenant that Christ instituted as better, as greater, as uh, heightened, uh, so that you have you have Christ as the ultimate uh, the ultimate moral standard, and it's no longer that we are to live our lives according to the law of Moses, because that that covenant has been abolished and. The new covenant has been established, and so we live our lives according to Christ. And, and I think we see that throughout Scripture. When you look in uh, Philippians 2, Paul says, uh, you know, look to Christ as your example, considering others more important uh, than yourselves. And he says, just like Christ, who though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself dying, even a criminal's death on a cross. And, and, and that's the standard that we're called to. You look in the Old Covenant, and the commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. You look in the New Covenant, and the standard is love your neighbor more than you love yourself. Jesus says, this is the new commandment that I give you. In, uh, I believe it's John 13. This is the, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Uh, for greater love has no man than he lay down his life. And so when you look at the, the Old Covenant, the, the, it was a standard to show Israel their sin, their need of a Savior. But now that the Savior has come, now that Christ is here, we're no longer in need of that Old Covenant, that Old Law, to show us our sin. Now we walk according to the Spirit which I think Paul highlights that idea in Galatians when he says that the law was like our, our nanny, our babysitter, until Christ should come. Excuse me. And so, so the way that New Covenant theology looks at the question of how do we deal with Moses, the, the answer is we deal with Moses not as law, as something that is binding on us, but we look at Moses and we deal with Moses as something that is didactic. It, it, it's a teacher. It teaches us. And to give a quick example of that, you see throughout the book of, of 
1 Corinthians, Paul especially uh, shows us how he deals with the law of Moses. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, remember that you have the, the circumstances with the, the man that has his father's wife. And, and Paul says, um, he, he says that we as Christians, now we have the true Passover lamb. The true Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the Passover in truth without malice, without sinfulness. Let, let us get the leaven out. And so, so Paul looks to the law of Moses, specifically the, the law uh, governing how you observe Passover in the week of unleavened bread, and, and he, he applies it to the church, but not as binding law specifically, but he, he pulls it through what what a New Covenant theologian guy would, would call the lens of Christ or through the lens of the gospel, and he, he applies it to the church. Because I, what, I think, what I think is happening and what I think Paul sees is that the, the people of Israel, the, the earthly people of Israel, were created to be a type and a shadow of the true people of God, which... Uh, Paul says again in Galatians that those who are of faith are Abraham's children. And so what, what Paul does is he takes that law that was given to the earthly shadow and he takes the spiritual truth out of that law and he applies it to the true spiritual children of Abraham, those who are of faith. And he says, yes, back in the Old Testament, they had to get yeast out of their house. They couldn't have yeast in their bread. They had to sweep their houses clean, clean out their pantries, have no yeast at all. He applies that in a, in a truer spiritual sense to the truer spiritual people of Abraham, the, those who are of faith. And he says, listen, the, the spiritual truth of this commandment is that we, we celebrate the Passover without the leaven of malice and sinfulness and the things that he mentions in that passage. Uh, you see it again with um, not muzzling the ox, which, uh, you know, Paul says God, God wasn't concerned with the ox, was he? No, he was concerned with those who ministered the gospel. It, it, it's, it's an earthly picture that has spiritual realities to it. And so that's how New Covenant theology is going to deal with the question of how do you deal with Moses? Well, we, we agree with the Reformed Baptist Covenant guy who says, yeah, the whole thing is abolished, but we're going to disagree at the point where the Reformed Baptist Covenant guy is going to say, yeah, yeah, well, it's abolished, but we're going to go back and we're going to pick up the Decalogue and we're going to bring it into this new covenant, and that's going to be the, sum the summation of moral law and our guide for living, which I think uh, is selling the new covenant short. Because you look at the, the Decalogue itself, and you have commandments like, Thou shalt not steal. You look uh, in Ephesians 4, for example, Paul says, the, the, the thief who used to steal, let him no longer steal, but let him work with his own hands so that he might have something to give to those who are in need. And so the commandment is, is furthered, it's heightened, it's, it's, it's made... Uh, to where it it requires truth from the inward parts, where under under the old covenant, 
Israel would have been allowed to live in the land as long as they didn't make idols, as long as they honored their father and mother outwardly, as long as they did these things, they were allowed to stay in the land and to live in the land. It wasn't until they began to make idols and worship idols and break the commandments outwardly that God, God brought oppression upon them throughout the book of Judges and, and then later ultimately uh, dispersed them uh, with, well, well, took them into captivity uh, with Babylon. Um, so, so I think the, the New Covenant uh, theologian is going to look at the Law of Moses, see it as something that we can glean spiritual truths from, spiritual realities from, and use it after we pull it through the lens of Christ, through the lens of the gospel, and apply it to the church, the, the, the children of Abraham who are of faith. And so that's, that's ultimately, I think, uh, New Covenant theology. Okay, so, and before we get into you guys discussing, I, you know, one of the things I always use as an example, when I was in a class on dispensationalism, so I actually would be the third major category between these. And you're hearing some of, uh, for folks who might be watching, you're seeing both Carlos and Lewis saying where they agree or disagree with each other. I remember taking a dispensationalism class, and so at the seminary I went to, you always had to read the opposite side of an argument, which I really appreciated being that being forced into me because it helped me to to get to the point where I could argue someone else's position before I try to attack that position, which is something we should all try to try to do. But the thing is, is that I'm taking this class and reading through dispensational books, explaining dispensationalism, and at a high level, I'm paraphrasing the book, but basically this is what it said. It said that a, a dispensationalist, that was, it said that a New Covenant theology believes in two ways of salvation, grace in the New Testament and works in the Old but dispensationalists always believe that ever since the beginning, it has always been by grace. Now, that ever since the fall, I should say. And so the argument they made against covenant theology was that there was this covenant of works. And you heard, you heard Carlos mention a, a covenant of works, and they go, oh, see, covenant of works, that means works salvation. So, okay, I read everything on dispensationalism. I go to read some stuff on covenant theology. And by the way, just, you know, this was before there were books on new covenant theology. But uh, I do have a paper on New Covenant Theology when it was just getting started. But uh, the, the thing was that I, I'm reading on Covenant Theology, and here they have, uh, I, and I'm paraphrasing again, but basically it said the exact same thing. They said dispensationalists, you know, di the problem with dispensationalism, they believe in two ways of salvation. Works in the Old Testament, grace in the New. And what they quoted was the original Schofield study notes, to the Schofield study Bible, where he did say that, and or, or things that at least really seem to be saying that. <laughs> that people say that's not what he meant and but he you know there that argument could be made and then they what the covenant theologians went off to say is that hey we covenant theologians believe that ever since the fall it's been by grace and I went wait a minute pulled the other book off the shelf I'm comparing I'm like these guys are killing trees much of what they're doing is talking past one another and if they'd actually listened to what each other's saying um they would realize they're both making the same false argument against each other and making the same claim for themselves. 
And uh, I often find that to be the case. I'm glad to see here that as both of these guys were discussing, they, they explain where they agree and where they disagree. So I uh, just want to put that out there. Um, so now I'll just, you know, Carlos, I'll just ask what, you know, if there, you have any questions with, with you know, just really I just want to open it up for you two to, to have an exchange, and I, I might just butt in every once in a while. Sure. Um, I actually, I did want to kind of, maybe get into a little bit of the, the, the difference between um, our views in so yeah and I, I agree with a lot of what uh, Lewis was saying that um, there's actually a lot of common ground with Reformed Baptist theology and uh, New Covenant theology um, but I but yeah as he was saying one of the one of the main differences is how we view the the law and the Old Testament law and how it relates to the New Testament and uh, one of the things that I guess that he had mentioned earlier was that uh, with respect to the covenant of works being um, exclusively for Adam, um, that's actually not quite what the co covenant theology holds to. The, the, the issue with the covenant of works or the, the, the teaching behind it is that when God made that covenant with uh, Adam, it was a... Um, this is where the concept of federal headship or representative comes in and so basically the covenant theology teaches that um, in that that covenant was made with Adam and all of his posterity and so basically the issue becomes that in order to be saved the reason we're condemned is because because Adam broke the covenant of works and so that we, we are therefore guilty of breaking that covenant in Adam and so this is where we start tying into, I guess, the, the differences between the concept of the of the moral law and uh, the con the because of the fact that um, the 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 it wasn't just the, the 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 explicit command not to eat of the of the fruit of the forbidden fruit. The uh, the implication that that we see as covenant theologians in the in the, in the text is that he also revealed the moral law to Adam. Um, in addition to that, you have instances like Cain obviously knew it was wrong to commit murder and, and things like that. And so I think this is where some of the differences come into play where, from my understanding, New Covenant theology holds to the fact that um, the law, the, the uh, absolute law or the law of conscience, um, they hold as being the two great commandments. Whereas um, in, in Covenant theology, the view is that the moral law is uh, that that is um, that was revealed to Adam and all of us in Adam uh, is the, the the moral law which would be the, uh, summarized in the Ten Commandments. So it's it's almost the same thing, and I see a lot of overlap there. I think one of the main differences is the fact that the Sabbath comes into play and things of that sort. But the really the issue is that what we must be redeemed from as unbelievers is because in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians and places in the New Testament where it says in Adam all die in Adam we're all condemned and that's because we are guilty of breaking the covenant of works and of not just our personal sin in other words but of also the, the breaking the uh, the covenant of works in Adam and so we must be redeemed from the curse of the law that was imposed on us by the covenant of works and therefore um, that that's where this whole issue of the the moral law and the ceremonial and the civil law comes into play as well. So a lot of that stems where our, our some of our slight disagreements uh, disagreements uh, come into play. Mm 
Yes, yeah, so let me ask this because I think both of you mentioned, and <clears throat> I think for people that may not be super familiar with with the differences, law becomes a big thing. So let me ask uh, Louis first. You know, what would you define as the law? Are there different meanings of law? And then Carlos, what what's the law? Well, I would say that there within just to be clear within New Covenant theology. There are four different streams that, that try to answer that particular question. Uh, what is the law? How do you identify what the law is? You'll hear Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 talk about being under the, or in law to Christ. And you'll in, in Galatians 6, that we'll bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. And the question is, what is this law of Christ? And, and there are different camps, different streams that attempt to answer this in different ways. The, the answer that I personally give, because I'm a, I'm a Bible guy, and I, and I want to I wanna stick to Scripture and, and stay as close to Scripture as I can. And, and what I see is within the Old Covenant, in order to receive the blessings of the Covenant, you had to keep the law. And not just most of it, but you had to keep all of it. And is when you break the law of the covenant, then the curses of the covenant are to come upon you. That's what's due. There, there were blessings and curses offered at Mount Sinai. And so you have, within that old covenant, a responsibility to keep the commandments. Within the new covenant, what do you have to keep in order to remain in that covenant? Well, there's only one commandment specifically that brings you into the covenant and keeps you in the covenant, and that's faith. That's faith in Christ. We're saved by faith, and it's faith in Christ that that sustains us, and, and we it's it's believing. You look in Romans 11, the well, Jew... Go ahead. Yeah, I want to try to keep... So we can get through lots of questions, keep them okay. concise. Okay. All right. So, so you, in the New Covenant theology, you would refer to you have an old would view an Old Testament law and then a law of Christ. You have a law of Christ. So, so why don't you differentiate yeah. those two? Okay. So so the law of Christ, I'm going to say, is the the spiritual principles that are pulled out of the law of Moses, like I described Paul doing in First Corinthians when he. He says we have to keep the, the, the Passover when he says we, we have to keep the law of not muzzling the ox. Those sorts of things which aren't uh, to be followed by the letter, but the spiritual principle comes out of that. So there's, there's all of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, interpreted rightly through the lens of Christ that puts forth the law that we are to follow, or I would prefer to say the ethical standard that we are to follow. There's the example of Christ, as I mentioned in Philippians 2, you see in 1 Peter 2, Christ uh, suffered that we might have an example to follow. Christ, when he washes his disciples' feet, he says, I've given you example, um, that, that Christ is the example of the ethical standard that we are to follow, to love not just our neighbor as ourself, but to like the, the commandment says, husbands love your wife just like Christ loved the church. So you have Christ as an example that we are to follow. That's a law that we are to follow. And you have specific 
imperatives throughout uh, the the epistles that that are written in the New Testament that those are uh, commandments those are those are imperatives that we are to follow so I would say those three things the example of Christ the the Old Testament passages read correctly and the New Testament imperatives are the the New Testament law although you can break those laws and not be out of the covenant just like or very unlike the old covenant and that's what I was trying to say is that the only true law of the covenant is faith okay Carlos now you mentioned law in a threefold so right. so I mean you you would see you know really I'll let you explain what's a threefold view of the law yeah so um the, in the Reformed tradition, I think there's, again, a lot of overlap between the Presbyterian view and the uh, Reformed Baptist view. Um, it's basically the, the, um, the, the law of Moses, the Old Testament law of Moses was, the, was the, uh, distinguished by three parts, and it, which would be the ceremonial, the civil, or the, uh, the, the civil, or the, uh, I forgot, the judicial, and the moral. And so this, uh, the reason... The, there's a lot of reasons why the distinction is made, and I think one of the issues that I've seen when New Covenant theology guys interact with this, um, with our view, is I think there's a misunderstanding between distinction and division. Uh, there's like a semantic um, uh, criticism that I don't think really applies. It's mainly just the fact that I, so a lot of the criticism that I've heard from New Covenant theolo uh, theology guys is that we divide the law of Moses into three uh, separate parts like as if like it w as if we didn't recognize that it's the same law we, uh, we do we do believe that the law of Moses is, is a unit that it is a whole but it, within that law there's three dis there's three primary distinctions you can say um, being those three uh, so we don't deny that the law of Moses is a unit or that it's a whole um, th the reason that one of the reasons that distinction is made is because of the concept or the doctrine of the moral law which predates Moses and so the moral law is prior to Moses because that's that's um, in, in, in covenant theology that's essentially the the uh, the um, the law that is always binding on on men at all times from Adam to you know and so to to, to everybody after that and so the uh, the the issue is and obviously and I don't think New Covenant theology guys would necessarily disagree with that. I think a lot of that might just be um, there might have been a misunderstanding as to what you know Reformed theologians maybe maybe they could have used a better terminology. But division doesn't mean that we break it up into three separate parts. It just means that it's distinguished into those three parts. And so um, the ceremonial basically being the the ritual priests uh, sacrifices and the food laws and things like that, um, which are which were abolished because Christ fulfilled them. And then the the civil law is basically the moral application, the application of the moral law to to the political or to the uh, society, and so that obviously we don't have to follow word, uh, letter for letter because we are not a theocratic nation of Israel, and so uh, that's why the the confessions say that it's a the, the general principle of it it can still be applicable for today, but it doesn't apply um, exactly the way it did before. So yeah, and and to be fair, dispensationalists also sometimes will. <laughs> Not just New Covenant theology will will get on on Covenant theologians on the three part, you know, uh, threefold tr 
division of, of the law. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> we, we got to be fair. Yeah, I, 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 I just learned that. I didn't realize that uh, dispensational guys also rejected that distinction, I guess. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's Carlos saying, yeah, I've been studying on that for my, my show. <laughs> <laughs> We've, we're doing new, addressing new covenant theology, dispensational. Yeah, <laughs> heads up, heads up. Yeah. <laughs> Shots fired. Yeah. So, <laughs> so okay, so so, I mean, you guys got to hear each other. Where do you? I mean, just back and forth. Where do you guys see agreement? Where do you see disagreement in your systems? Short answers. You can go ahead, Lewis. Okay. Uh, well, let me let me read this from uh, Richard Barcelos really quickly. Uh, I, I'm, this is the uh, Reformed Baptist Covenant view, and this is where we agree. So this is from Barcelos. This is from his book in defense of the Decalogue. He says, Hardy agreement must be given when New Covenant theologians argue for the abolition of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. This is clearly the teaching of the Old and New Testaments. Uh, he lists a couple of passages to back up that claim. He says, the whole law of Moses, as it functioned under the Old Covenant, has been abolished, including the Ten Commandments. Not one jot or tittle of the law of Moses functions as the Old Covenant law anymore, and to act as if it does constitutes redemptive historical retreat and neo-Judaizing. And basically what... Marcellus is saying is, look, that, that covenant given to Moses, the, the moral, the civil, the ceremonial, all of it's been abolished. And, and New Covenant guys would say, you know what, we agree with that. And that's what he's basically saying. He's like, hearty agreement must be given to the New Covenant guys. This is what Reformed Baptists teach. So we agree that the Old Covenant has been abolished. Uh, the, the point of disagreement is going to come from how you view the Decalogue. The Reformed Baptist view says, okay, so the Decalogue's been abolished, and it no longer functions as, as covenant law, but because it's, it's moral, and it binds all men in all ages at all times, we have to, to take it, pick it back up, and bring it back into the new covenant. And then that's where I'm going to disagree with that statement. And I'm going to say, well, one, the Decalogue is not all moral. Uh, the Sabbath commandment is not a moral commandment. That was a ceremonial commandment. And if you remove the, that moral commandment, then the, the Decalogue as a moral standard, as a pure moral standard, ends up, uh, falling, falling to the ground, and, and that's where I would disagree with the Reformed guys and saying, look, you guys want to say that all ten of these commandments are moral, but they're not. And, and because they're not, you cannot use that as the summation of morality upon which you hang all the rest of, of moral law. Um, yeah, I think the, the, so... With respect to the the Sabbath, that's obviously a major point of uh, contention, and I I will qualify. I'm not personally. I'm not a Sabbatarian. Um, Reformed Baptist and Reformed uh, and Presbyterians are by and large Sabbatarian. The Confessions are Sabbatarian. The the Westminster and the Second London Baptist is uh, 
also Sabbatarian. Um, but I do, uh, but I, and by Sabbatarian I mean that basically the command to keep the Sabbath was um, modified in the New Testament to, uh, on Sundays, uh, because that's when the Lord was risen on a Sunday, and it, you're supposed to dedicate that day to public and private worship. And so, and to, and the Sabbath is very complicated. Um, it's there's a lot tied into it, and so it's this is one of the 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 things. There's basically three parts to it, from what I understand. There is the 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 rest aspect of it, where you should take um, you should take the time to rest from your regular uh, working, you know, employments and things like that, and take a time to dedicate completely to the Lord, uh, specifically in public and private worship. And then there's the other, the other component of it would be the, um, the the moral aspect being the moral principle behind the Sabbath that I still hold to as applying to the New Testament is the fact that the the principle behind the Sabbath is to trust God, and so trusting God specifically. For example, when God when God was uh, delivering Israel out of Egypt and feeding them manna, He told them not to store anything. Um, I think I, I, something having to do with not to store anything for for the seventh day or something like that, because um, th you were supposed to store on the day before in order to 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 keep that Sabbath. Yeah, it was a, it so, was a matter of trust. They they were right, to... right, right. And so that's what that's what I still hold to, and that's what that you know, and not so much. I'm not that I find the arguments very. I'm still working through that basically, but um, that's the principle, and especially so. Basically, that means that you can break the, in the new covenant. You can actually break the Sabbath any day of the week, because whenever you're, every time you're anxious, every time you you don't trust God, uh, God's sovereignty, you're guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And so that's that's what I would say with respect to that. And because the principle there is again is to is to trust God and to trust in Christ is to is to trust in the finished um, work of Christ not just for salvation uh, but for everything else. It's like the New Testament says, you know, be anxious for nothing. And so um, there's that. And then the other aspect of the Sabbath is, is of course the ceremonial aspect uh, in the New in the Old Testament, uh, where you know you have the the issue of and you have different kinds of Sabbaths and things like that, and so it's not just the the, the seventh day Sabbath, but also that that all of those other different Sabbaths. And so um, that reform teaching is basically that the the ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath was abolished, but the the moral uh, the way that it still applies morally is basically those modifications that they make that they make to uh, dedicate it to public and private worship to set the whole day aside. Um, to not work or or uh, to cook and things like that, unless it's out of necessity or mercy, and so yeah, that's basically that's that's one of the major points of contention as to why I guess they don't hold the ten commandments. And really, uh, when you see Christ saying the, you know the two great commandments, um, he's basically summing up the ten commandments in those two commandments. And that's what we the reform teaching is that the two great commandments are a summation are, are a summary of the ten commandments. And the Ten Commandments are a summary of the, basically the whole law, and so uh, th and that's what Christ said that they hang on all of these these two commandments hang uh, all the law and the prophets, and so. Yeah. Now, you guys, I mean, I mean, first off, Carlos said you said one thing I was new that I haven't heard people say as far as the every day you could be breaking the Sabbath. That it's unnew to me, so I'm 
curious about that one. Um, but as a as a Reformed Baptist, you would not be a Sabbatarian, correct? Right. I um, so I'm I mean, still you working. Would agree on that the Sabbath. Let me try to word it correctly. Would you, would you both agree that this the laws for the nation of Israel about the Sabbath are not applied to the church? I, I tried to word it carefully, but in what sense? As far as <clears throat> you know, the laws of not being not being able to start a fire, not being able to walk a certain distance, things like that. Right. So I mean, you would you would let's put it this way: uh, you would not have a problem, Carlos, going into uh, a Dunkin' Donuts and getting a cup of coffee on a Sunday. Well, I would, but for different reasons. Not for this. Not for this. <laughs> I'm actually. <laughs> I'm actually diabetic, so that would not sit well with okay. me. Okay. Uh, yeah. No. The right. The the thing. The thing becomes the uh, so. The issue. With, I'm, using, I'm uh, using that example only because I was actually I, I I was speaking at a Presbyterian church, and I, I'm a I'm a Baptist, so I'm not a Sabbatarian, and I <laughs> I stopped at Dunkin' Donuts for coffee at the way on the way in, and. I had left my coffee in the car. I didn't finish it. I forgot it there. And I said to my wife, like, oh, I forgot the, the coffee. And in the Sunday school, the pastor of the church who was speaking during the Sunday school was talking about the Sabbath and how it's a sin to go to a Dunkin' Donuts and get coffee on a Sunday. And I realized that was God's providence keeping me from finishing my coffee. Because <laughs> I would have been in big trouble walking in with it after so, Lewis, you, mean yeah. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be holding to the Sabbath uh, the same way Israel did, would you? Oh, no, no, no. In fact, I'm, I'm surprised. I, I hold to the Sabbath the same way Carlos does. Uh, Carlos sounds a lot like a NCT guy more than a, a CT guy. So I'm surprised <laughs> to hear him say that. Um, well, but, he's, but as a Reformed Baptist, I think that's what, uh, uh, Carlos, correct me if I'm wrong, a, a Presbyterian co the covenant theologian, some would hold to a Sabbath being still applicable, correct? Uh, yeah, obviously they believe it's it's in the sense that you're supposed to dedicate it. So in other words, you shouldn't be watching, uh, you know, football, secular TV, and some people, I guess, argue you shouldn't go out to eat in restaurants because that would cause somebody else to work. And so, um, but the 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 main it's because part of the the issue behind this is also the fact that uh, oh I just lost my train of thought. Um, it's it's no, I think I wait wait it's the issue is that um, I so I do believe you know, this gets worse as you get older, Carlos. I'm just warning you. <laughs> <laughs> and you know oh, I'm, not, I'm noticing in the background everyone get, you know it looks like you got some charts back there and everyone gives the dispensationals guys yeah. a hard time for charts. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, that's actually. Some of those are from my King James only days. Uh, the, some of those are from <laughs> Ken Hoven, but uh, yeah, um, no. But so basically, the I still believe the Sabbath is a moral law that we're still obligated to keep the Sabbath. Um, th but the way I just the way I see that is in the fact that you have to trust God and trust Christ providentially and uh, savingly for for your salvation. And so the um, the the other issue behind okay now I remember the other issue behind the Sabbath is whether the, a big debate or the big uh, dividing line, I guess, becomes as to whether the Sabbath is a creation ordinance or a um, positive law revealed in, in Moses. And so I'm, I'm studying those arguments right now. I find, them, I find them very compelling. 
Uh, I'm not fully convinced of them yet, but uh, Presbyterians and I think Reformed Baptists would would hold that because the command because God um, rested on the seventh day after creating the universe, you know, the world and everything else in six days, um, that that the the command was implicitly there because in Exodus 20:11 when he's or is it 20:11 where he says to a uh, you know, remember. He also says to remember the Sabbath, implying that the the command was already there, and mm -hmm. so and because and the reason he gives is because in six days he made the the earth, and so that's why um, uh, Presbyter uh, Reformed guys hold to the Sabbath as still binding in the sense that you should set apart that one day uh, fully to the Lord to rest and to uh, dedicate it to public and private worship and and so on and so forth. But yeah, I'm I'm not quite there yet. I'm I'm still kind of wrestling through that you're aspect of it. still reforming, you're saying. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I'm still reforming in that in that area. Um, and But I do believe the Sabbath is part of the moral law in the sense that, you know, you, you, you trust in Christ for your salvation and you trust God providentially. And so you can be guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Um, Gentiles can be guilty of breaking the Sabbath, therefore, as well, because they don't trust Christ for salvation and they don't trust God providentially each and every day. Okay, so Louis, you you agree with uh, all or most of that? Uh, no, I. Um, you, well, okay, you're you're asserting that you believe it's part of the moral law, but then you describe it as a ceremonial law. You say you're not a Sabbatarian, but yet you believe that it's a moral law to follow. Um, yeah, to well, I mean, it's moral in the sense that. The, with respect to trusting in Christ for salvation and trusting in God providentially. Okay. But in His providence. Okay. Earlier, uh, when I talked about in, in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says you have a moral obligation to keep the Passover, would you agree with that? that well, he doesn't use the word moral, but he says that we have to keep the Passover in truth? Um, moral obligation on believers to do, to do that? Say that again. Uh, okay, in First Corinthians five, let me pull yeah. it up so that I can I can hit and have it uh, word for word here. Although this might take a while here for my phone to pull it up. Uh, five. Sorry, I was adjusting my brightness. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. So you have a situation with the man who has his father's wife. And the, the Corinthians are boasting of how loving they are and how accepting they are and how, you know, hey, we're cool. We're not, we're not judging this guy. We're not, you know. Um, so they're boasting about how, how cool they are with that. And, and so Paul says in verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, the Passover festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's, he says, look, let us celebrate the festival. You have an obligation to celebrate the festival, to celebrate the Passover. How do you see that? Um, well, my understanding is that that's talking about the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, no, 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 no. He's he he's addressing the issue with the the man caught in in sin with his father's wife, 
and he's saying cleanse out the old leaven. Get, get rid of the leaven. Get, get it out of here, right? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. See, he takes, he, he equates the old leaven as being symbolic of malice and evil. And he says, now let us celebrate the festival with the new leaven, or without leaven, sorry, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he's speaking yeah. to, to, to their moral behavior, that they ought, to, they ought to be sincere, they ought to be true, they ought to get rid of malice, they ought to get rid of, um, of evil. And then he's speaking to their, their moral obligation. Yeah, yeah. I I think I I, I guess I confused this when he was also uh, rebuking them for abusing you know, the Lord's Supper and um, they were also abusing the Lord's Supper. But yeah, right. The purging the leaven, meaning you know to purge out to judge the 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 unrepentant sinner from your midst and remove him from 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 the church. Yeah, right. So is there a moral obligation for the church to do that? Absolutely. Yeah. So is the Passover festival a moral law or is it a ceremonial law? Oh, okay, I see what you're getting at. Um, well, the, uh, so the Passover, I guess, would fall under ceremonial in the sense that Christ fulfilled it um, because he is our Passover lamb. And so I think I, this is basically an application of, I guess he's showing that because Christ himself is our Passover lamb, um, that we should therefore, by uh, by implication, purge away that that old leaven of malice. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't. It's uh, it's um, yeah, that's an interesting. I, I haven't really thought about that. That's an interesting. That's an interesting point. Um, but but yeah, obviously that's a moral. You know, where this is and this is part of the law of Christ. Like we don't. We all we obviously hold to the law of Christ as well as Reformed Baptists and. Uh, even Presbyterians hold to it as well, mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, the, that by there, there's obviously cases of where you the the ceremonial uh, and civil law are are applied to um, I guess moral commands or part of the law of Christ in the New Testament, such as you know don't muzzle the ox, in other words, pay pastors well, compensate them well for what they do, and you know this other example that you mentioned about um, the uh, the Passover, but yeah, so that that wouldn't. But obviously, what we mean is the fact that we don't literally celebrate the Passover the way the the Jews did. That aspect of it is abolished, and you know, it's by way of the uh, implication or the spiritual, you know, spiritual implication behind that uh, would be what can still apply. Right. That's that's. I think the very definition of a ceremonial law is that the actual external practice has been abolished and is gone and you, and you take a spiritual principle out of that and and you adhere to the spiritual principle would you agree with that i i think so yeah i think so okay but that that's also what you're doing with the sabbath when you say that the external keeping of the sabbath is gone we don't have to keep all these external aspects of it but we keep it in a in a new spiritual way we keep the sabbath which, which is right. the definition of a ceremonial law. Right. So, 
the because I'm not a Sabbatarian, I don't hold to that. You know, I don't fully hold to setting. I'm, yeah, I'm still kind of not fully there as to set, you know you have to set apart the whole day to to public and private worship. I'm I'm starting to go in that direction uh, a little bit more as I read these you know the arguments behind it being a creation ordinance versus a uh, specifically a mosaic com uh, command. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I would hold to the Sabbath in the sense that it's still. I don't hold to, I guess, the ceremonial aspect being carried over in, in terms of setting apart a day, um, but in terms of the principle and uh, the fact that, yeah, basically in terms of that, the moral principle behind trusting God. And so, yeah. Okay, so, so I guess, my point is it seems like you are taking a new covenant approach to interpreting that, that fourth commandment as not as a moral law that you have to follow, but you're taking the, the spiritual principle out of it the way that you would do any other ceremonial laws. So, but okay. So, would you agree then that uh, unbelievers are guilty of breaking the Sabbath? Uh, are they guilty of breaking the spiritual application of the Sabbath? Sure, because the spiritual application okay. I would agree with you is to trust God, to rest in Christ, which is why in Hebrews four it says those who have those who believe enter into the rest, therefore let us strive to enter into that rest, lest we fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's talking about resting in Christ. Like if, if you're not resting in Christ, if you're not observing that him, he is the Sabbath, if you're not observing that, then you're going to fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so you strive to continue believing and trusting every day you believe, every day you trust. And, and so... I mean, I, I, I mean, I agree with your position on the Sabbath uh, 100%, which is why what I'm telling you is I, I don't think you, you're recognizing that there's a moral principle that comes out of it, but I don't think you realize that when you do that, when you, when you only recognize the principle, that you're actually defining it as a, a ceremonial law and not, not a, a moral one. Uh, well, I, so... Yeah, in a sense. So, in a sense, this ties into my, you know, because I hold to the, to the uh, doctrine of the moral law, and so that, in other words, I, I, I'm not sure where you would be at with respect to the Sabbath being, you know, before Moses, but I would say that um, because it's part of the moral law, um, everybody is guilty of breaking the Sabbath, you know, from Adam to to uh, you know to to today, and so I think this is where this also ties in. And I know another major point of potential point of dis, uh, disagreement is the fact that um, the the concept of the, the law that the reform teaching that uh, with respect to active obedience um, that that Christ uh, that it's not just the the passive uh, righteousness of the I'm sorry the passive obedience of Christ but also the active obedience of Christ that's imputed to us as believers um, the passive obedience being you know the fact that it's some the terms can be a little bit misleading. Because Christ Himself was actively obeying on the cross, He didn't complain and He didn't blaspheme God and He didn't sin. So, um, the 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 concept is basically that uh, it's not just the passive obedience that's applied to us as believers, but also His active obedience. And by active obedience, the Reformed teaching is that Christ fulfilled the the uh, He fulfilled the entire law, the Mosaic law, but His active obedience 
was applied to us because we broke the covenant of works and therefore the moral law. And so it, that, that would include breaking the Sabbath um, in principle. What my view would be in principle. And so that is where I guess those, those differences start to be drawn out a little bit more because my understanding of it is tied to uh, the doctrine of the moral law as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to read something to you real quick. This is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Philip Ross, his book, From the Finger of God. Are you familiar with that? I think I've heard of it, yeah. It's, it's a defense of the tripartite uh, distinction of law, the civil, ceremonial, and moral. In the beginning of his book, he addresses the the Sabbath issue. Um, he says here, uh, and, and he's a Presbyterian, so he's he's coming at it from the Westminster. He says, if the Westminster Confession were a garment, you would not want to pull at that thread. He's speaking of the thread of the Sabbath. Don't pull at that thread unless you want to be altogether defrocked. And he says, if you unbuckle the Sabbath, you're well on your way to mastering theological escapology. Let me say that biblical law with its Sabbath is no easily dispensable part of the reformed doctrinal infrastructure. And what applies to the theology of the reformed churches often applies to wider Protestant theology. Therefore, attempts at performing, and this is the important part, I suppose, attempts at performing a precision strike on the Sabbath produce an embarrassing amount of unintended damage. If you strike out the Sabbath, you shatter the entire category of moral law and all that depends on it. And what I'm saying is, is if you if you take the, the view that you do on the Sabbath and you say that that the Sabbath is only to be obeyed in principle, the same way that you obey any other ceremonial law, and it's not to be obeyed in in actual word by the actual letter, which is what moral law is, right? Do not commit adultery. It's not saying, well, you can commit adultery as long as you don't lust in your heart. It's it's not saying that you can you can murder someone as long as you don't hate them. Uh, the Moral law is, by definition, law that is applicable to the letter. And so I'm, I'm just curious how, I mean, I don't, I don't know if, you're, if you've really considered that you're, that you're approaching the, the Sabbath law in the same way that you would any other ceremonial law. Um, yeah, well, the, the Sabbath is definitely... Like a, it's a special case um, be, because of the fact that there's there's so many different things into that that come into play, and um, the, you know those, there's there's like at least those three layers um, that I was describing, and um, in terms of I guess I guess your point is I, the point that you're making I guess is that you're saying um, we should keep to the Ten Commandments to the letter, not just the principle. Is that what you? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's that's what moral law is to be kept to the letter. Uh, well, the the it's not so in terms of the moral law is not just uh, the literal um, keeping keeping the letter of the law. It, it's also like you you it was also a sin to you know to lust in the Old Testament. You know Proverbs twenty four nine for example I think says the thought of foolishness is sin. 
So it just wasn't punishable by death. You know, not everything was punishable by death. I think partly because it had to be witnessable. And so, um, so the, the the moral law is not just. It, it, I think this. I don't know if this is another point of uh, dissension or disagreement, but um, the moral law encompasses the you know the spirit and the letter. And so, with but with respect to the Sabbath, I guess um, I would say that the way the the way that it at least applies. Um, or as far as I'm willing to go right now to say is that you would have to keep it in terms of trusting God uh, providen uh, providentially and for your salvation and maybe also in terms of uh, resting uh, resting I guess uh, setting apart or I guess taking a break from well no that's that might that's kind of getting into the, the whole point of like you're resting from your regular routine in order to de dedicate the whole day to God so um, I, I, I at least would say that in terms of trusting God providentially and for your salvation, that's how the Sabbath would apply. Um, and so, uh, obviously, you were guilty of breaking the Sabbath in the in the Mosaic Covenant if you broke that literal uh, command as well. So, um, if you were a Jew, but if you were an unbeliever in the Old Testament, I would say that you're guilty of breaking the Sabbath in that way, in the spiritual way of not trusting God for your salvation and for um, you know, for uh, your providentially speaking, right. So, and I agree with you. You said that the moral law has to be kept in by spirit and letter. But when it yes. comes to Sabbath, you're saying it only has to be kept by spirit. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I guess um, it. It's one of those. Yeah, so maybe that might be a, that's another good reason for me to become a, a Sabbatarian or closer to that position. Uh, it's just it obviously in the, with respect to unbelievers or to Gentiles, um, it doesn't apply in the in the sense that it does to the to the nation of Israel. So there's obviously a difference there um, with respect to the. I guess part of the issue is that because this also uh, touches into the fact that um, how we do church. And so the command to keep the Sabbath, in some sense, also has bearing on the church because, you know, you should set apart that date to, to worship God publicly and privately. And so, um, whereas in the Old Testament as well, you, you know, you have to keep the Sabbath by resting completely and, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, I guess that, that might be something... That's something that I'll have to consider. I'll have to give it more thought. Well, you said it might be a good reason for you to become a full Sabbatarian, but it might also be a good reason for you to become a New Covenant theologian. <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's going to take a lot more than just that one. 